Hello, I'm Damien Edwardson, one half of Art92 and the co-creator of Pre-Mortis, a tale of modern horrors. And welcome to Oh Men to That, the chip-free sporadic podcast series where I'll be talking to a selection of guests on a diverse range of topics centred in and around the world of art, comics and all things creative. On today's show, I'm thrilled to bring you a genuine Halloween treat. An artist who for four decades has produced some of the most memorable art in the horror genre. Ask any horror fan to name a classic horror poster or video cover and they will undoubtedly mention The Evil Dead, The Evil Dead 2 and A Nightmare on Elm Street. All of them rightly share a place in the history of classic horror films. But they also share something else. The iconic artwork was created by the same brilliant artist. And I'm honoured to be joined by one of my own artistic heroes. And today we take a special look at his 40 year career that incorporates work not just for horror films but also for album covers for the likes of The Damned and another one of my personal favourites The Cramps and much much more. So make sure the doors are locked and that you have your garlic ready as we investigate that strange noise in the attic and discover the frighteningly great art of Graham Humphreys. So welcome to this very special Halloween edition of Omen to That. If you ask any fan of the genre what the Mount Rushmore of poster artists usually consists of, it'll be great names such as Drew Struzan, Richard Amsel, the great Tom Chantrell, and tonight's guest, who, in my personal opinion, is one of the greatest contemporary artists the UK has ever produced. With a back catalogue that includes movie posters, video and book covers, magazine illustrations, and album covers, He's now entering his fourth decade in the business and shows no signs of stopping. It's my ridiculous pleasure to say a big hello to one of horror's true artistic legends, Graham Humphreys. Hello, Graham. Welcome to the show. Hello. Um, I, I cannot live up to that introduction, I'm afraid. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> one is going to be disappointment. <laughs> well, I've got to be honest with you. Um, as well get the cards on the table I'm, I'm a massive massive fan of your work and uh, so i will be lapsing into fanboy mode very quickly um so to people listening i, I don't apologize you know this is this is a, a a dream come true to have a, have a good chat with you about your work and your career and stuff and i mean you work particularly in the field of horror but also the other stuff that you've done for example you know the cramps covers and stuff like that it's, it's punctuated my life um and it's it's one of the reasons why I wanted to to be an artist. So you're to blame for all my uh, amateur doodles that I you know I put out there for people. <laughs> well, that's a good healthy thing, I think. So how have you been? You know, the strangest of times, I would imagine. Probably not what we all imagined 2020 would be. But you've been keeping well. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know, uh, the work I do, um, it's very much me sitting at a desk painting on my own. So, uh, um, you know, the lockdown hasn't had a significant impact on my work at all. Um, obviously, I can't go out and see friends and do all the things that uh, I'd usually like doing uh, socially. But, um, you know, you, you kind of you, we learn to adapt to such. Then what it's done is... Um, uh, given me a chance to discover my local area in a way that um, I haven't ever done in all the 30 years I've lived in this uh, particular flat. Wow. 
So uh, I live in Tooting Beck and there is a, a large common um, at the end of the road, which I'm quite lucky to have as, you know, some sort of a natural open ground. There's a little bit of a forest there and there's a, a lake and um, uh, but there are other parts to the common which I didn't even know existed. Just we have to do is cross a road and suddenly there's another part. I didn't even know it was there before. <laughs> it's only 30 years, you know. Fantastic. And um, discovered the Jurassic stump, which is <laughs> there is one on Tooting Common. And um, and actually just walked the other side of the main road, which leads to the tube station for the first time ever. And <laughs> discovered a whole new part of London, which I never knew existed. <laughs> been literally there, you know, five minutes away. And... Um, and, and so, you know, looking for places to walk just to get exercise and, you know, get away from work, um, discovering, you know, places like Wandsworth Cemetery, which is this uh, fantastic Victorian graveyard, um, uh, which, which, you know, is quite phenomenal. It's got, you know, some, uh, it, it's not anywhere near, um, the, you know, the Magnificent Seven, as they're called. But however, as a local, you know, uh, 25 minute stroll away location, it's it's um, very relaxing, actually. Yeah. Actually, during the summer, um, height of the summer when it's really really hot uh, and warm um the grass is completely bleached and it just reminded me of that uh, graveyard in the good bad and the ugly <laughs> you can't beat a good graveyard can you i mean let's be honest it, <laughs> I know, to be fair anybody that maybe doesn't follow graham on social media you just spend a disproportionate amount of time in graveyards um, <laughs> <laughs> might as well get used to it. i'm going to be there one day aren't i <laughs> i get a vicarious thrill out of because we and h uh, are going look at, look at that graveyard it's like it's beautiful yeah, it's right. socially distanced as well you know you're, you're always um six foot away from the nearest person <laughs> brilliant <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, let, let's not go there too often at the moment, eh, Greg? Let's give ourselves a bit more time, right? But, uh... I just find the living. <laughs> Mind you, you probably get more sense in a graveyard at the moment than what's going on. Um, That's true. You know, no, like, you know, nobody's there, you know. it's um, People don't want to go graveyards in daylight. So, uh, um, you know, it, it's great for just, you know, uh, gathering your thoughts and uh, just, you know, getting this kind of great sense of relaxation. And um, yeah. nobody's there. Perfect. We used to go, um, when uh, my wife and I used to live in North Wales, and we used to go to Chester for a day out, and we'd go and sit in the graveyard of the cathedral because it's the only place that nobody was in. You'd go and eat our butties in there, you know what I mean? It was, it was really nice and relaxing. So I can recommend graveyards to people. Anybody listening you know, who's a bit sick and want a bit of time alone, go and have a picnic in a graveyard. Go on, you'll be fine. You know, yeah, we don't believe well, all those films. Okay, <laughs> 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 Mind you, most of them are probably dogging hot spots now, aren't they? We're, we're getting ourselves into all kinds of trouble here. <laughs> well, I thought I thought that was Zoom meetings nowadays. So just reading about the uh, the, the the guy from the New Yorker who got <laughs> masturbating on a Zoom meeting. <laughs> he didn't know his camera and sound was still on. <laughs> oh, well, I was reading today about that because um, obviously we share a lot of similar views graham in in you know regarding things like religion and politics <laughs> and about the was he the priest or the pastor in some place in florida i think it was who got I caught reason, having yeah. a satanic on the altar it's like if i tell you what if you're gonna go all out that's the way in it you know what I, mean? like, I just want to think he was dressed as a rabbit as well or something like that, you know? the most shocking thing that somebody put in the comments actually which did make me laugh was saying i'm i'm completely shocked that this is a priest caught you know in some compromising position with with two consenting adults <laughs> <laughs> 
I'll have to put a disclaimer on this one now. Uh, not like the old days, eh? Oh, God. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. Okay, so I suppose we should we better get talking about your work before we get into any more trouble. So just just for those that may not be familiar with you, and it's strange because your name's already come up on the show twice already now. Um, once when we did an episode about like classic movie posters, and obviously your name came up uh, several times. And another one when we did one about um, the good, the bad, the ugly of, of 80s video covers as well. Um and you'd be pleased to know your return to living dead came up as the good uh, for one of the one of the <laughs> on that loves that that original painting you did. Back to the graveyard again. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah. But some of the some of the some of the bad and the ugly. Oh my word! I tell you, absolutely <laughs> horrendous. Absolutely horrendous. Well, I think so, I, I kind of covered most of those. Um, <laughs> I don't have any bad stuff. Some downright ugly stuff as well oh no no but uh yeah so i thought you know and thankfully you've you've agreed to come on but it'd be great to get you on and talk about your work because you know we had a lot of interest in that and a lot of people who were asking more about um what you did and stuff so i mean i find it appalling people don't know who you are but you know that's just me <laughs> and, you know i mean I get quite good, actually <laughs> <laughs> so it's actually no bad thing i don't think so for those disgraceful listeners who aren't familiar with your work, <laughs> tell, us a little, tell us a little bit about like your history of how you became an artist. And, and was it always kind of like your career plan? Um, yeah, well, yes and no. Um, uh, probably when I was uh, um, very young, I, I wouldn't have known that um, such professions were an option. And um, it probably wasn't until I was at school uh, and, you know, approaching the, um, you know, the CSEs and O-levels and stuff that, uh, you know, kind of got a bit more serious. We, you know, we had a, some careers advice and, um, you know, my parents started talking about, you know, well, well, son, you know, what are you thinking or what, what, what's your future hold for you? <laughs> I don't know. It's all stay at school. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's only graveyard, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't be an undertaker. Uh, actually. <laughs> Oh, you know, it's an option, isn't it? I mean, many, many good people have been. I think this is how Dave Vanian from the Damned um, began his uh, 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 spiral into Gothic. And uh, I have a good friend of mine I used to work with many years ago who uh, decided to leave the um, film marketing business and um, take up, take up, well, not quite the shovel, shall we say, more the right. top hat end of um, things. <laughs> I remember when um, my brother was just turned 19 and it was back in the days of the YTS in um, in that period of the 80s, which we won't name the uh, the primates of the time because we don't allow that kind of swearing on this program. <laughs> but, you know, she had this wonderful scheme where basically you work your bollocks off and got like, you know, nothing. I think it was like 20 quid a week or something, wasn't it? And he actually got sent an opportunity to work as an, un- as an apprentice undertaker. Wow. And my mum was like, get it done. You know, because my mum, she loved horror stuff. That's where I think I get it from. And, and um, you know, she was kind of like, don't be bloody daft. He's like, oh, I'm not dead bodies. And she's like, don't be bloody daft. It's like, you'll never be out of a job. You know, and, and he didn't do it. He went, he went labouring instead and hated every minute of it. But, yeah, I always thought to myself, you know, it, it, it would have been the best thing you'd ever done. Uh, yeah. Become an undertaker. What a gig as well. You know, this is. You know, it's a nice thing to do sometimes, isn't it? When you watch people, and it's, uh, you, know, you get a bit of interaction and um, yeah. uh, with the living and the dead, and um, you know, you get to uh, see all aspects of humanity. I think, though, and it also it's a very humbling thing just to 
uh, see um, and accept um, death because you know it comes to us all eventually and, I, I, and um, I don't you know people are frightened of it and I think that kind of rules people's lives to an extent and yeah. actually the one thing you want to do with your life is actually live it rather than fear what happens after um so uh i, I mean for my I, I you know this is going way off subject already <laughs> but um you know i i think You're i learned keeping chipper graham yeah. bloody hell mate <laughs> i learned a long time ago but um you know you shouldn't be frightened of death and it, it's just you know it's an inevitability and um I, I suppose going back on subject here i think horror is a great way to kind of accept some of the um uh, darker aspects of, of life if you like and um, even if it is largely a kind of fiction but you know it's um horror is a great way of um kind of dealing with fear uh, uh fears it's it's an expression of, of that and um and it's a, a very cathartic thing i think that um it's it's how we deal with those um things we're not too sure about and uh you know some people turn to religion and some of us turn to horror films yeah, yeah. <laughs> i think i think the latter are far more fun <laughs> You know, uh, most of the horror fans I've ever met are incredibly well-balanced uh, people who who are not only very friendly and, and smart. I, you know, I'm, I'm not you know just joking here. I think they have uh, an outlook on life which is um, far more balanced and uh, you know positive and rewarding um, than people who who you know I just think it's you know horror films are just you know infantile nonsense. I mean, uh, you know, certainly. When I when I uh, consider other types of people, should we say who who, who um, you know whose agenda uh, involves you know harm, these aren't people that like horror films generally, uh, because they actually become the horror film in a way you know in, in real life. And um, you know what what you know what we want to do is uh, to be able to be kind of circumspect. And um, people who love horror films aren't going to go and kill people. Um, they're balanced people who who know exactly you know that they're, they're it's fictional and um yeah. and uh you know recognize it for what it is and um you know in terms of entertainment and stuff it's great but uh it also does help address um you know issues shall we say yeah. I, I mean i think that um if you look at the great literature which um has influenced the sort of contemporary horror film in many ways, so, I mean, I'm going back to the Gothic stuff, I guess, the European Gothic, which is, uh, I mean, I guess if we look at, uh, you know, things like Frankenstein, Dracula, you know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, um, all, all these all these um, pieces of work have some kind of a, a pivotal anchor, I guess, I'm um, mixing mm. my metaphors, <laughs> which is unforgivable, uh, but... Uh, they, they they have their roots in social issues and um you know that they're, they're sort of uh, attempts at addressing um the way society regards certain people and um gender and um you know issues of otherness and in in, in ways which are obviously concealed um yeah. should we say um in a sort of in an entertainment but at the same time uh, i think they're all the more powerful for it and um you know, uh, it's no wonder the books were considered transgressive when they were first published, because um, in some ways they are. And I think good horror um, tends to do that. It, kind of, it, it goes, you know, against the sort of uh, norms of um, acceptability in, in polite society, should we say, and, uh, and helps us address those things that, you know, people don't want to talk about.
Yeah. And yeah. if you look at the history of horror films, uh, through its, its, its uh, highs and lows, you know, you can identify, you know, uh, things like the First World War, Second World War, uh, first, you know, nuclear um, explosions. Um, you can look at um, eco-horror, uh, you know, gay rights, women's rights. I mean, it, it, everything's in there. It's all encapsulated in, in, in horror. And it's, it's just quite wonderful to see, really, that um, as we look back at the history of horror films, we're, we're looking back at our own immediate history. Uh, and I think yeah. that's um, something to celebrate and um, and continue, you know, to, to explore. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, the classic, obviously, that a lot of people point on that kind of subject is uh, Romero's Now Living Dead. The subtext of that was around racism and, and the, the treatment of others. Um, I remember watching that the first time and I was I was absolutely gobsmacked when I, you know, at the ending. Um, you know, not wishing to spoil it, but if you're not seeing it by now and you're listening to this, then it's it's your own fault, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the, the fact that the, the main sort of character is, is shot at the end simply because... He's black, essentially, you yeah. know, and he's seen as as a threat. And I was, I was, you know, I was appalled. I was only young when I watched it, and I remember asking my mum why it happened, and she explained to me why, you know. And at the time, I was thinking, it seems a bit unfair. But yeah, you know, and it, and it, you're right. You know, there's a whole history through horror where it, it is willing to tackle those things that other genres, I don't think they can. Not quite as cleverly because you know, with horror, you know that a lot of the mystery is in in the 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 actual monsters and often you know the monsters are should we say the uh the the conservative right of of what you call mainstream society aren't they and yeah. then you look around and think jesus you know it's around by monsters yeah they're not, they're not wrong are they <laughs> stick a yellow little Easterbix on the top and you've cracked it <laughs> do you think it's because horror fans are more open-minded though that they that they can tend to be a bit more well adjusted in dealing with things um so i think i think they're also able to um you know uh, uh, distinguish be- between reality and fiction because i think you have a heightened fiction which is so obviously not real life uh, and then you have the real life which actually some people just don't deal with very well i think yeah. i yeah. think horror fans do do tend to deal with um reality in, in a lot uh, in, in a very sort of uh, healthy way Mm, interesting stuff. See, everybody thought this would be really boring. We're already getting into the deep stuff now. So let's go back. Let's go back into the time machine. So you were getting told you needed to get a job because you were leaving school, <laughs> and you okay. were working with an undertaker. We rule that now. An hour ago, wasn't it? from all the graveyards. Talking about something uh, which is more relevant. Uh, yeah, I do remember um, my dad suggested you know maybe you should consider being a businessman well I don't know what that meant and um, I don't think <laughs> anything really it means just anybody in business doesn't it but uh, anyway the, the one of the things he did come up with because um, they understood that obviously I enjoy drawing and um, you know art was the, the sort of uh, uh, the, the strong point at school and um, you know even even at home as well as always uh, uh, drawing and painting and um you know, I think we were looking at options on that and the only thing that actually really existed at the time was graphic design. And so, you know, Dad sort of basically said, well, you know, you could maybe consider being a graphic designer. And I had no idea what that was. And um, so as an example, he, <laughs> having breakfast, he said, see this cornflake packet, somebody designed that. <laughs> I think so. So graphic design was really about doing cereal boxes. <laughs> <laughs> well it's a silly job but somebody's got to do it and I thought well I could probably do that <laughs> uh, so anyway I, I, that's when I realised there was such a thing 
and but it, you know it, it's something you could earn money from mm. uh, and you know I, I think you know at the time probably in the 60s um you know advertising in america was well established um mm. uh, even in britain i think we were beginning to see the, uh, you know the, the advent of um kind of quite serious big money in advertising and and uh, you know a lot of the big agencies were kind of established in, in the 60s and uh, 70s in particular was um kind of almost like a it was rock and roll i think yeah and, it was that mad men kind of era wasn't it through from yeah, the 50s I mean, right you know, excess you know uh, in big advertising agencies i mean just shocking amounts of money and um uh, booze <laughs> and, yeah. and um, indulgence in sports cars and, and the whole damn thing but i remember we um if we if we jump forward and we can go back if you like but uh um, in the first year at art college, uh, we did have, um, he was one of the main directors of J. Walter Thompson, one of the biggest advertising agencies at the time. And um, he'd come to visit the college for the day and just you know, talk to us about advertising, um, what it entails, the options and you know his own experience. And, um, you know, what well, it was a, a tale of excess in many ways. And uh, he said that, you know, there's one thing you know to, to remember that um he'd always been told himself that um in advertising you know they're great opportunities he said you can make lots of money but all designers at the end of the day just piss it up against the wall <laughs> and, and, and <laughs> nothing at all and he said it's just that that's the way people tend to be in, in the, the world of design i thought this is fantastic <laughs> i want to do this <laughs> way to go <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I studied illustration at art college, actually. Um, and we were always treated as the kind of um, the unwanted cousin at the dinner table. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> to the graphics because They would get all this nice new equipment and access to computers. And we were just like basically, you know, given a load of metal and fruit to draw. And, and that was it. And uh, it's funny because I, I look back on art college. You know about your experience with art college, but ours was... Um, pretty bad actually because we didn't actually learn anything we didn't we didn't learn color theory we did a color wheel the first week then we never learned how to use it so that was that was <laughs> doing this for. and the, there's two things that i i actually took from art college and one was that um i got to do life drawing because obviously you know and that's that's why i ended up going into kind of portraiture and figurative work and the other one was stretching paper which paper, you yourself when i see you stretch paper yeah. a little bit of my well, my heart goes in the same way that we did because we did the same thing basically you'd have your wooden board yeah you'd, you'd put your paper down which is just you know some cheap cartridge paper anyway they didn't use um anything of any quality at all and you would uh, tape it down with brown tape and then you would wet it or no would you wet the paper first and then put the Yo, tape we right so we did it differently so what we did was we used to um basically don't like take the paper through a, a a sort of big sink or a bath or whatever it would be so yeah. it, was, it was completely wet then put it on the board and then gum strip it down across the four edges well i think we must have done the same thing it's, well I, I just learned that you can do the same thing by uh taping it down not bothering with the whole wetting it nonsense and um of course it buckles if you put a wash down it does buckle but yeah. then it just dries flat anyway though and um so it, you know that that's the way i've always worked and i also realized that if you put wash down and when it, when it buckles the, the the water travels around with the pigments and uh gives you kind of um um effects and uh so that's yeah. really uh, how i learned to to pretty much work um for the, for the last 35 years of my career the first five i hadn't quite realized that was a good way of working until one day 
Um, I remember one client saying, I can see bits of white paper. Can you actually deal with those, please? <laughs> like, little, tiny little dots of white showing through. For God's sake, you know. And I took it away, just, you know, do, do two tiny little dots just to cover up the white bits, and he was happy. I thought, well, I'm not going to have this again. I'm just going to put a wash down every time now, so there's never any white paper for anybody to see. Fantastic. And, and I love it. I mean, I, I get really excited and I know you probably get sick of seeing me keep kind of tweeting you about it. But every time you put on some process steps, I get really excited. It's like, I'm going to say, oh, Grace doing a wash. And she's like, oh, we both sit It's very hard to hold a camera and, um, you know, try and do oh. this stuff at the same time. Well, it's not cameras, it's obviously a mobile phone, but um, yeah. it's all very random, spontaneous. There's no great planning to it. I mean, but, you know, when I start a job, I do have an idea of how the finished result should look. Mm. Um, sometimes I won't consider the colour until literally about 10 minutes before I'm actually about to put the wash down right and just kind of come to me uh sometimes I've already decided it, it's hard not to find yourself going with the same colour things all the time because I mean I, I've, I've learned that certain ones do work it's also the fact that the pigments are easier to work with uh, with certain um colours as right. well uh, other ones are more difficult and also because I'm working over a drawn trace already this pencil you know on yeah. paper um there's at least two pigments which will kind of eradicate they don't, i mean they just there's something about the density of the pigment um actually just lays so much grain over the top that actually you can't see the bloody paper <laughs> pencil <laughs> just completely useless so anyway i've learned to um avoid those so that that kind of does inform what i'm doing slightly there's, there's lots of practical reasons why i do what i do and, and the way i do it and it is really just so i can work fast and efficiently and I think it's unique as well, because when you look at your work and, you you know, if, if you ever, I mean, before I was obviously doing a bit of prep for this and I was I was going through your latest book, which we'll uh, talk about a little bit later on, which is Hung, Drawn and Executed, The Horror Art of Grain Humphreys. And if you haven't got it, you should get it because honestly, yes, you, should. you must. You should. Um, firstly, because I can't afford to pay grain for his time. So if you can sell a book, <laughs> I'll feel less guilty. Well, secondly, it is absolutely gorgeous. I mean, it's a beautiful beautiful piece of work and you talk about your process in there and, and give examples don't you of working through well i think it's important to um show people how, how the work is achieved um but there's no mystery to anything and um you know there's, 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 no, there's no secrets there uh, you know I, I do trace stuff and um you know i, I don't apologize for that some people think it's cheating well it's not because um, everybody's uh, traced stuff um you know since you're a dot anyway so yeah and it's just it's just a very efficient way of making sure that everything's in the right place and you're not constantly going back and forth and wasting time because you know I, I've, I've kind of said it before that um clients aren't paying for you to experiment and, and indulge your artistic prowess yeah for you to deliver a job which you you know they, they have a certain amount of money which they're prepared to pay you for and um that gives you a certain amount of time to work in so what you want to do is give them the best possible job in that time which means yeah. that you actually earn money and waste nobody's time including your own so you learn to go with the processes which allow you to do that and um that's being professional that's the way it should be and that, yeah. that's you know completely out of respect for the clients and for uh, the people who are going to be viewing the work at the end of the day anyway i mean what you want to do is um you know present people with something they can look at and uh, feel that you know you, you've done a sort of a functional job which hopefully they can enjoy looking at as well obviously i work quite a lot digitally now as well um because I, I do comic books and things so i just find it more convenient to work that way i still do physical work and i really enjoy doing it but you see a lot in the digital world you do see a lot of um 
overpainting of photographs, which is very different to what you're talking about. Because, you know, if you see Graham's work, what Graham has is he basically has a very, very um, scant line drawing that he, he fully paints and renders. And that's where the, that's that's the stuff that people can't do. Whereas with digital, what you tend to find is you get people and they'll literally just put a filter over a photograph and then, you know, put a couple of texture brushes on and then it's a digital painting. Well, it's not. It's Photoshop. You know, it's touching up in Photoshop. It's completely different, in, in my humble opinion. Well, I mean, um, I think, you know, it's, it's a valid technique which works for certain things and there's no, you know, it's, it's, it's um, I, I don't have any issue with it at all. I, you know, it's what it is and it's uh, a way of working. It's just not what I prefer to do because I enjoy the yeah. paint process and um, and the random um, effects it produces. And, uh, and you know, at the end of the day, um, I also end up with a stack of paintings which um, have, uh, you know, value as um, items in their own right, which I can then sell yeah. to collectors. So, uh, you know, there's those sort of the physical artefact, uh, which doesn't require an electricity supply. Yeah, that's the thing <laughs> And that was a reliable hard drive, and there isn't yeah. such a thing, it seems. Like and that's the downside of, um, of doing digital. It genuinely is, is that, you know, you, you haven't got those um, original pages and things to sell, you know, and, and at conventions and stuff. That's what sometimes people want. Well, know. or exhibits, you know, I've exhibited yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. When, you look at, when you look at the um, actual paintings themselves, the... the, the uh, the whole feel of them is very, very different uh, to the printed item. I mean, all my work as a professional illustrator is, is ultimately destined for print or, you know, on screen increasingly so, but um, still, you know, still print mostly. Um, and so I've learned to work in ways which uh, uh, represent the work well through those mechanical stages that, um, mm. you know, what you see on paper is pretty much uh, what I've created on, on in, in paint on paper. That was always very important, especially in the early days when uh, the methods of uh, reproduction were, were not always that great. And um, certainly working in a lot in black and white, which I did mm. not in the early days, simply because um, colour printing was expensive. So a lot of publications like music papers, um, you know, daily papers, even magazines. A lot of magazines were still printing black and white pages because it was just too yeah. expensive to do colour. So you had to, to work in, you know, work out techniques which worked well uh, with halftone screen, sometimes without halftones, just solid black and white. So these are all things you kind of learn as yeah. you go along because you see once it's printed, what's working and what isn't. Yeah. And, you know, as colour became, um, you know, standard across the board, you, you then had to uh, once again learn on a certain stock, you know, for instance, if you're doing work in the music press, especially in the, um, you know, the kind of that would be in the late 80s, I guess, more so early 90s, that they're, they're still printing on newsprint. So it's full colour on newsprint, which of course just looks hideous because you don't get the depth of colour. And so you yeah. learn techniques which would kind of give you an effect um, which would look good, but you, 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 know, you knew certain things just couldn't print. So yeah. there's no point in actually working on something which is just not going to exist when it's at that stage. And of course, you know, as digital printing has improved over the years, I mean, you know, honestly, safe printing is it's fantastic compared to what it used to be. Um, I know pretty much that whatever I put down on paper, as long as my scan is good, I'm going to pretty much see exactly the same thing. When you exhibit work, the quality of light on painted surface on the paper itself, which has a, a texture as well, isn't going to be the same as a, a, sort of a very smooth, flat piece of white paper, yeah. which has an ink dot 
quite a flat ink dot on it. But, so that, that's the only difference, but it means that the pieces of art themselves take on a different, you know, a, a different feel. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's interesting for people to, you know, look in closely and see brush marks and oh, just yeah. see, see the real work there. And it's like, you know, it's putting like chisel marks in, in, in wood, you know, it's, it's kind of mm. that simple. Like I say, you, there's a lot of texture in there. Even when, when you look, I was flicking through the book earlier, as I say, you know, there's a couple of close-ups of things. It's just, it's just, I love that, that textural feel of you know a painting and, and when it's reproduced well as well you just can't beat it it's just the pencil over some some paint and the way it cuts in and it's just oh well there's something just gorgeous about it in it that you know you you don't get from a shiny flat you know kind of um, well you know that, that for me that's that's layout. why I, I i prefer paint to the idea of digital i mean i know that you know there are a lot of digital artists that I, i've seen that they're working very hard to try and create uh, that sort of painterly effect, and um, you know, it's 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 very odd that you should want to do that in some ways when you think, you know, why don't you just paint it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but um, you know, I understand, you know, that, that it, it's a whole different discipline, and um, it's not one I'm especially interested in myself. I mean, I, I did a lot of Photoshop work um, when I was working with uh, Titan Films, and um, you know, I learned a lot about uh, photo composition and. Um, yeah. you know how you put images together digitally and um you know i enjoy doing that and, and i still would do uh but you know I, I would do it from the eye of an artist who works in paint and yeah. Uh, yeah. I, you know i was working in a studio with other people who who actually did the sort of high-end retouching and compositing and the fact is they weren't artists they were um technicians and the difference it, it is quite astonishing really because you know what, what you're looking at is a very technical technical high resolution image and you know they're very concerned about making everything crisp and as, as you know as hard as possible and it's it's just quite soulless in a way and you get this ridiculous thing where you perhaps have um you know your foreground uh, portraiture you know which is probably a very high-end photograph mm. it's been delivered you know sort of in high definition but then there'll be some background element which is all equally as you know high definition and sharp in sharp as well and actually just life doesn't look like that at yeah. all and actually what you're doing you, you're just you, you're losing all sense of depth and reality and um you know the client will probably love it because i think well, everything's really sharp it's not fantastic and they'll demand it in you know such a, such a resolution for you know large format posters but you know you look on the underground you look across the platform some massive poster but the thing is you're not looking at the pores on the skin you're looking at the oval image you're looking at the composition uh, you, you're aware of colour and you're looking at expressions on faces, you know, because that's that's what, you know, people were looking for, that that engagement. And, you know, the expression on a face isn't made better by the fact you can see, you know, the end of the eyelash um, or, or, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And in fact, you won't because, um, you know, largely these people, uh, or these images are, are so, so heavily retouched anyway that actually it's not even... You know, it, is, it becomes digital art uh, yeah. in a way, and um, I, I use the term art, you know, in, in inverted commas, because um, um, it, it's it's not art; it's it's, it's a smokescreen. You're not looking at um, the reality of life; you're looking at a sort of hyper real version, and it's just quite tragic that um, you know actors should feel they they're best represented by this kind of insane, you know, hyper reality, which is just not them. People aren't interested in how smooth their skin can look. They want to know if they can act. And actually, 
engage with the characters and um you know there's expressions i mean it's just you know you kind of you want to engage with the eyes you want to see what the mouth is doing is it smiling is it shouting you know all this kind of stuff and um and you know the, the obsession with with this kind of uh, uh, high gloss it, yeah. it's insane and i, I you know i, I realized that way back before we had this you know the, the notion of high resolution stuff and we, when we used to uh, um i mean I, I watched the process of film posters being created using right. high-end transparencies i mean you know um pay photographers do these incredible shots on um you know sort of 12 by 10 transparencies i mean just the, I mean, the detail was fantastic but there was still a grain in there though mm. and it's grain you just could not disguise um you could retouch it and you know people often did um but you know there was a, a lost start now it's a lost start of actually uh compositing uh transparency so you'd have somebody with a literally with a sort of um a, a knife a scalpel who would cut up air, you know parts of a transparency and cut another piece it's almost like putting stained glass windows together right. but match them up then you re-photograph re that right um, and then retouch up touch up all the uh, all the joints with bleaches and dyes and stuff I mean, it's just incredible to see. Yeah. Of course, it was um, uh, a highly paid job because it required an artist, you know, somebody who's a real artist as well as a technician as well. And um, it's just something that's lost now. It's um, in the same way, you know, we've lost matte painting, you know, in film, which is, you know, sort of the physical on-site piece yeah. of with a painting on it, which gave you your castle and mountain in the background and, yeah. and uh, you know, or whatever else that, you know, the, the budget just wouldn't allow. And it's amazing, isn't it, when you, you look back and see um, how many of those major films, like Star Wars and stuff, had matte painting backgrounds. Yeah, first film where I was really aware of how matte painting yeah. could be so effective. And you just, you didn't even question nope. what you were seeing. The eye just is prepared to make that leap and... and um, believe what it's seeing you know yeah, you just, it's incredible it's incredible you know depth and perspective but it's all just a painting on a piece of glass yeah. and even even when you know you still don't see it that's how good it is isn't it that even though you know when i watch um you know stars and things now even though i know certain things are, are matte painted i it never i never sit there and go oh it's a painting <laughs> you don't it's just so well done However, but, you might now you might judge cgi and that's that's the difference i think if you mm. uh, with with um you know with with matte painting it kind of didn't quite look entirely real but you believed it because it's yeah. necessary for you to buy into whatever is happening on screen whereas now because everything looks so um real actually you you, you question it and um it's just it's annoying almost i find myself <laughs> being annoyed constantly looking at new films <laughs> that would age grave don't worry about it i'd around the graveyard <laughs> <laughs> so you know let's let's just go back to to yourself and, and your links to horror because i think it's fair to say by many that you you are actually an integral part of the horror genre i mean you are to me and i know you are to lots of people i know and as we touched on before that you know you are yourself a, a, a horror fan so what was the first horror film that you saw can you remember uh, yeah uh, uh it probably was psycho um, obviously, you know, I, I wouldn't have been old enough to have gone to the cinema and, you know, it would, it, we're talking about the, uh, probably at 1970, something like that. I'd have been about 10 years old and um, I was allowed to watch it because um, it was black and white and um, 
somehow that kind of made it okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was on telly anyway, so you know, yeah. what, you know, uh, you know, because films were censored, you know, at the time um, for TV. Uh, so there's certain things you know my parents knew could not be seen on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was late night, and I was allowed to stay up and watch it. And I think come about um, eleven o'clock, my dad. I think my mum sent my dad down just to tell me about the ending, just in case I was frightened. So <laughs> completely spoiled for me. <laughs> Your dad was the modern day version of the internet, wasn't it? <laughs> I know. Spoiler and coming down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> that was probably more frightening than the end, wasn't it? <laughs> sort of picks it up on you. <laughs> probably, yeah. But no, I remember um, the uh, other films that then I was able to see um, at that age would have been, you know, some of the old Universal um, mm. films, which, um, of course, in, in the US, they, they uh, kids have been watching those for, you know, a decade or so, um, you know, on, uh, in, in broad daylight TV kind of, uh, on the various channels they had there. Yeah. Um, whereas it's still kind of late night fare, right, which is insane when you consider the tame content, you know, almost ridiculous content. But that was just um, a censorship at the time that it just had. Yeah. It, also, it, it proves what a dirty name horror had. You know, it's like something to be embarrassed about and you know, concealed into in a late night slot uh, where hopefully people didn't watch it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's weird, isn't it? But there's yeah, yeah, it was a video recording as well. You couldn't even record the damn thing, so you had to stay up and watch it. And yeah. didn't well, see of it. course, when videos came along, that was a whole new world of um, access to things, what? wasn't it? That you know, I, t- I told this story on another uh, episode about videos, and I was saying that we would talk about where was your local video shop, and uh, I was saying that we had a place near us because I grew up in St. Helens. And um, this guy, and I said today, he'd probably end up in jail because he'd let you rent anything. You know, I was like nine or something. And you go in, they go, here, have you seen this? You'll like this, you know. And it's like cannibal ferox, you know. <laughs> and we won't be like, what have you got? And I'm like, and this fella said it's a film about, about people in the jungle. <laughs> luckily, you know, my mum um, and my dad, they were, they were quite broad-minded in that sense, you know, and then, it senses some stuff we could see, but they had the they gave us a really good, healthy appreciation of things like horror films that look, you know, it's not real stuff and it's this and it's that. And um, I think that that's what made everything a bit less frightening. I've, I've never really been scared by a horror other than the first Evil Dead film, which I think the shaky cam just freaked me out, to be honest. You know, um, you, you have just touched on something quite important, which is um, that when you create taboos around something, that's when it gets dangerous. Yeah. Because um, it's suddenly forbidden and uh, and actually kind of drives people a bit nuts, I think, though. I mean, um, I think that, uh, um, I, I think, you know, it's one of the issues I have with religion sometimes, that um, it creates so many taboos and actually just makes people quite mad. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, 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 you know, it, makes, it frustrates people and because um, they realise that actually, you know, the way the mind works, and the body works, it's not actually kind of it, it, the way it's supposed to be, as you're told at church or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, and suddenly, you know, you get these kind of people just go slightly loopy, I think. And um, yeah, it's so many taboos that people just can't cope with it. It's just not human yeah. at all. Though. And I think that, you know, if you, if you can um, see things for what they are, like, you know, if you watch a horror film, you, you, you know, you can be told you know you can get a dad spoiler alert coming down the stairs it doesn't matter the thing is it's you know it's 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 always you understand it's fiction and actually that um you, you kind of remove the sense of shame and guilt 
um, because those are the most dangerous things you can, you can put onto a child, I think, and, um, yeah. and it, does, it does kind of, you know, um, creates monsters, I think. Yeah. Right, yeah. So I think by removing taboos, then then you kind of free up um, people to form their own opinions and actually in a healthy way and actually give them a healthy outlook. I mean, you're not in jail, so there you go. Proof of the pudding. Well, there you go, isn't it? <laughs> I'm not in jail either. <laughs> <laughs> Yet. <laughs> yeah. Wait for it. <laughs> so, uh, think about horror. So, Psycho was your first horror film, and, and do you have a particular favourite genre of horror? I mean, I know you're you're a massive Hammer fan, aren't you, as well? And I mean, I love the old Hammer movies and stuff. Um, but I must admit, you know, I am a sucker for a bit of a a kind of oh, look at that! He's showing me this this teaser now of wonderful uh, Christopher Lee just flashed across. It's, uh, the reference for the current job. So. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, my favourite film is is The Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 74, and I absolutely adore that film. And it, it's funny, because when I talk to people, they always think it's like, oh, it's really gory. And I'm like, it's actually not that gory. <laughs> it's psychologically scary. That's what it is, you know. And, um, you know, Toby Hooper was was great at that stuff, wasn't he? Um, we just said it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose, you know, I do, because I, I grew up looking at the gothic stuff, which is not only Universal films or the Hammer films. And because... Um, those are the first things I saw. Um, it made me also um, want to know more about wh- where they originated from, you know, where these characters came from. So um, that's when I started reading a lot. And, um, you know, I made a point of searching out all that source material, which was, you know, Mary, um, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Bram Stoker's Dracula, um, you know, uh, Hunter of Notre Dame, all, all those famous monsters. Yeah. I looked, I went to the original source material, you know, the Phantom of the Opera, the short story, Gaston Leroux. I mean, all, all, you know, they're all kind of great pieces of writing. They're all very florid now in, in, in you know, contemporary terms. But, um, but you know, I, I think I was even aware when I was reading them, there was um, uh, some interesting messaging going on within them. Um, they didn't relate quite so much to the films that I saw. Um, which didn't matter because I, I, I think armed with this background knowledge, the mm. films then took on a different texture in many ways. That um, you know, you know, if you watched uh, you know, Frank Stein versus the Walkman, you know, you're not going to get Mary Shelley's um, <laughs> you know, uh, depth and social commentary in there. <laughs> you're not going to get any social yeah. commentary at all. Basically, you're just going to get a couple of monsters, you know, beating shit out of each other on top of a dam. But um. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it, it's it's that's that's really what I think um, informed my taste in horror is, is the the writing part of it though, and um, that kind of led me on to you know Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Lovecraft. So yeah. I, I, I've had a particular fondness for any any film which kind of use uh, either of those two as a source material, and um, of course I'm still always interested to see what happens with the those early classics anyway. Though I, although I always think that. Um, you know, attempting to update Dracula and Frankenstein as the sort of prime examples, um, you know, it, it's hit and miss and probably doesn't always work because I think they were, you know, creatures of their time. Yep. And actually that's where they should remain in many ways. So, I mean, I don't want to see Dracula doing a selfie, for instance, on a mobile phone. <laughs> anyway, he'd be disappointed because he probably wouldn't show up anyway. But, um, uh, but yeah, you kind of, uh, it, it, you know, it, it's, I am interested in history as well. And because I think, you know that, well, that classic horror has a context and i'm interested in that context as well and you know it, it, it plays into another great love of mine which is architecture as well um and um you know you can't be a bit of gothic architecture 
the architecture itself is part of the it's a character within the scene isn't it you know you don't treat it yeah you you know you don't kind of just throw in a cast in the background it's actually integral to the the whole story of what you're trying to tell within the i always try to add an element of location in anything i do it's uh, i think it's very rarely that i'll just do something which is all portraiture i think there's always some elements i mean it's one of those things when i'm working on something you know i always know there has to be kind of three things going on there has to be um inevitably the portraiture because that's kind of what it's expected of something Mm -hmm. if you've got a film which has some amazing character in it of course you're not going to not have that character as part of it and and well i don't it's not my area to 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 work in um you know um visual riddles that that's other people do that much better than i would ever possibly do it so mine is you know it's in in your face kind of portraiture but um uh, i always like to have some narrative elements in there something which tells you a bit of the story um and then also location or, or placement something which gives you a sense of time and place uh, which is usually something um, of architecture in there uh, or landscape, something which gives also depth to the image because, you know, if you've got a big face up front, then you want to, you know, you don't want it just to be a flat page. You want something yeah. to suggest, okay, this big face is right up in front, of, you know, in front of you, but there has to be something behind it. And actually the more distance you can create, yeah. And the, the more an illusion of depth you have, and uh, I think it kind of adds a layer of interest to the work. Wonderful stuff. And one thing that always um, strikes me with your work is, well, particularly around the hammer things, is the use of colour. Your colour palette for those pieces is just, it's, it's astounding. You know, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a, I, think, I, I always thought that, um, I always see the hammer films being quite colourful. And I'll tell you why. It's simply because, you know, when they um, hit payday with uh, Frankenstein and Dracula, these were full color horror film which you know they, they weren't new in that respect however it was they were i think it's about the first time they really tackled those classic uh, gothic um subjects in full color and right. the idea was to completely embrace that hence you know the the, the very vivid blood uh which doesn't yeah. look great at all however it's it's great to see this kind of bright red on screen yeah and you know the the lighting which, you know, what's interesting about those early Hammer films, especially, you, you, you're just aware that the technicians, lighting technicians, were lighting for black and white in many ways. So mm-hmm. it's far more sculptural yes. um, than, than uh, I think, than lighting for just pure colour, because you're trying to give um, the illusion of, um, you know, of depth uh, with very limited means. But then when you add in colour on top of that kind of black and white lighting, if you like, you, you kind of end up with this this really rich, severe look. I mean, there's, all, there's always a lot of rim lighting going on, you know, whatever is, mm. is lit. There's always some very bright light just behind the character. Always, so he's got this kind of one side, which just has this mm. very hard edge, um, which you know, it's very kind of visual and very sculptural. And it just looks fantastic. But also, as I was saying, they, they really went on board with the uh, colour, I mean, palettes and um, coloured lighting, coloured gels as well, though. And I think if you look at films like, uh, I mean, all the early Dracula films, but when you get to things like Bri- the Bride of Dracula as well, the Gorgon as well, that's really where you see that colour looking particularly lurid and, and just mm. quite wonderful. And just using colour to, um, you know, denote, you know, death or, or uh, otherworldly kind of, you know, like graveyard settings or, um, 
just you know some sort of subtle hint of something changing that the, the yeah. pack will suddenly change and uh you know even kind of creating character palettes if you like though so, so that you know if you Van Helsing is going to be lit differently to Dracula, for instance. Mm, and mm. so you get signature lighting as well as the signature music as well, though. It's, I mean, you know, it's quite interesting to see all the layers that are going on there, mm. which actually makes these films quite compelling. I mean, obviously, um, you know, they're considered a little bit tame and comical now. Uh, I, I do remember going to the screening of um, Dracula, Prince of Darkness, and there were a number of uh, uh, audience members who obviously probably hadn't even seen the film before. Uh, shocking as that is, of course, like, <laughs> but um, uh, fair enough. Like, and, um, you know, seeing it for the first time, of course, you know, there is some hints of melodrama and old school theatre acting, if you like. You know, the sense that the actors are desperately trying to convey stuff, which that even they don't know if that's actually working on screen for them. But, you know, there, there's a, a theatre tradition going on for a lot of these actors, which um, you don't kind of see much now. Um, people go from much more naturalistic performance generally i'd say yeah. actually it's more believable but at the same how at the same time looks a little bit lazy i think yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know it's in the same i feel the same way about music as well though i mean um it's great having a band on stage delivering fantastic music but if they're not completely immersed in it themselves as characters i feel a bit cheated and that's why you know i mean you know, obviously the era i grew up in meant that you know i had some great bands to see who were not just only producing great music but actually looked fantastic on stage i mean you know you look at susie susie sue for instance yeah. who, who very much the embodiment of her music uh the damned you know dave vanian uh who, who clearly took inspiration from udo Kier's um look in um uh, blood for dracula uh you, you know you, you got a sense that he was delivering all of himself and immersing himself in that character uh to deliver the music and you know i i appreciate that sense of commitment um, which yeah. you see on stage and I think that, that you know when I don't see that I, I feel that um you know I want my money back basically <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know, know. but there are there are like you know less people that you feel put on a show you yeah. know as in, you know not just turn up and mime and dance but actually but it doesn't, it doesn't you, do traveling music you know it doesn't you know mm -hmm. I think that, that theatrical performance is is integral because it's just it heightens the communication and even you know a band like the um sex pistols for instance who would obviously never consider themselves to be on stage to be a theater um you know they're you know they, they in, in their heads they were there to deliver yeah. authentic working class message you know i'm just paraphrasing you know quotes but uh you know, actually, if you look at them, actually, there was very much was a sense of theatre, especially Lydon, yeah. who absolutely played it to the hilt. I mean, you yeah. know, that's an Oscar winning performance he's delivering each time on stage. And, um, you know, he himself cites, you know, Laurence uh, Olivier's performance of um, Richard III as being a huge inspiration for him. And, um, you know, you look at his performances on stage and you think, God, you know, you, you can recognise a bit of perhaps a bit of a hammer in there, you know, a bit of Dracula's yeah. hair. And all these little things are, are kind of in there, and certainly Susie and the Banshees, you know, Susie Sue certainly was a big horror fan, and you know, hence the name Banshees. And um, but you, you've got also got a sense that there was a very, very definite look which she was imparting, but that didn't detract from uh, um, certainly in some of the early songs the, the seriousness of messages that were yeah. within the lyrics at all, though. So you know, it's not flippant at all, I think it's just um. 
another way of just um, hammering the delivery, if you like, though. Just, yeah. uh, it just adds uh, another layer um, which uh, of engagement, which uh, yeah. I think, you know, as I've described before, is what I consider commitment. Yeah, I like to still pretend that uh, Johnny Lydon is still playing a character. <laughs> Given, <laughs> you know, I keep telling myself, no, think, no, it's all an act. <laughs> he, he, I think he, he sort of become his character in some ways. It's a little caricature, if you yeah. like. And, um, you know, I think he, he, he definitely was playing a character. And, you know, he, he has said that himself. But um, I think that it's, it's kind of people around you can be quite dangerous, I think, though. They can feed feed that character and feed that ego and um it, it kills people you know literally yeah or not call it out when they see it you know i mean how exactly. many, you know there's this there's a whole sort of legacy of people that aren't with us simply because somebody didn't turn around to them and say you, you pack that shit in <laughs> do you know what i mean and it's a shame <laughs> isn't it but you know there, there we go there we go the thing but is it's bringing the dollars you know i think that people are happy for them to employ them you know it's as simple as yeah. that you you, you, you these uh, people who are actually doing the creative stuff um, just just get consumed by and consumed by people, yeah. and they get trapped. And it's just a real uh, it's a real sort of shame and, and sad thing to see. Um, but you know, uh, largely by and large, you know, I think many artists do do rise above that. And uh, I think you know, truly great musicians, um, you know, can transcend all that nonsense. Fantastic stuff. So just going back to your art obviously the first time i actually recall your work was for the evil dead so it was 81 was that evil dead 82 i think 82 yeah i can't remember i'm failing my old pub quiz now that's terrible yeah. isn't it <laughs> um and and how did that come about um being in the right place at the right time as simple as that um no you know no again no mystery to this at all i was just um looking for work and uh, somebody mentioned the name Palace Pictures, new company. And uh, I, I'd been, you know, uh, dragging around my folio of, um, you know, not very good work, um, most of it from art college uh, to two different film companies, to Jupiter's and uh, largely nobody was interested at all because it just wasn't, you know, it wasn't the traditional slick illustration work they were looking right. for, for film posters. and. Um, uh, so, yes, there's a lot of uh, early disappointment there. I mean, the thing is, it didn't stop me from doing what I was doing because I knew that what I was doing was perfectly valid and um, would find its place. And yep. uh, I didn't know when and how long that would take. But uh, I, I suspected probably horror was the natural place for it. Um, but uh, but nevertheless, I, I just persisted. And um, when, when somebody said, you know, here's another company just popped up, um, why don't you go and see them? That's all it was, just another company um, who were probably just going to look at the work and say we can't use that and um, on to the next one. However, I was very lucky in as much that they were themselves quite young and naive <laughs> and um, uh, and weren't you know, coloured by um, um, years in the business and um, by seeing all the stuff that is, is the traditional uh, approach, should we say, yeah. look. So they were willing to take some risks, and um, uh, and I was one of those risks in many ways. That uh, the Evil Dead was something they just bought at Cannes, I think, Cannes Film Festival, and they were just looking for ways to market it. And um, they saw the work, and in their eyes, it was exactly what they were looking for: the yeah. style and the approach, and um, uh, and also, you know, a sense of humour as well. 
which had always been very important to me. I, I, I like work to be funny. And even you know now, I think a lot of the work I do is quite funny. <laughs> Probably isn't apparent to anybody else. Nobody else is laughing, but I am. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, with Evil Dead, it was very much meant to be a sort of a parody of a horror film poster, if you like. It wasn't, yeah. I didn't ever regard it as being a horror film poster in, in you know, out to horrify or, or, or shock. It was just intended to be a sort of a joke in many ways, though. And, and you know, which is kind of how I saw the film. I don't think yeah. it was meant to be, I don't think it was meant to be a sort of a joke film as such, but it was obviously laden with humour. And as we know, you know, uh, Raimi and um, Campbell and um, um, the other guys were just really into Three Stooges. And, you know, they just packed it with all this yeah. ridiculous slapstick uh, all the way through. So um, I didn't think that my approach was inappropriate at all. Uh, I don't think the poster now, looking back, at it doesn't look that funny at all, really. But um, <laughs> I was chuckling to myself as I was painting. Me. <laughs> it's a classic, though. It's, it is truly one of those classic posters and it? it does we said this about um your return with the living dead poster as well um that you did i think was that for the video release over here it was the video release yeah yeah and and one of my um one of my guests picked that for the uh his best video cover and uh, i picked another one of yours actually which we'll come on to in a moment and the one thing that we came across, I, I who, said, who yeah. is that wonderful guest? <laughs> it's a, it's an artist called Dan Butcher. Yeah, he's a big fan of your work. Thank you, Dan. Um, but we, um, we we were discussing it about what was it that we liked, and it was the humour of it. It is a fun poster that. And the other thing as well is that I said it was very. I thought it, it captured the spirit of the film. It was very punk rock. It was very, you know, kind of um, loud and 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 sort of in your face and that that's what i took from it you know and and i don't know yeah, again, I, mean, that deliberate? I was trying to return to the evil dead um it, it stylistically for it <clears throat> but uh, also uh part of the reason i was commissioned um for that was because well specifically because of the music content um it, it, and in particular um the track by the damned and by the cramps and because they put me forward to do the job um yeah. was a big cramps fan and we'd seen the cramps together quite a few times Fantastic. and um and so it was her thought that i would be the right person because i think in in, in i mean the film had already been released in cinema uh and they knew it would do well home video anyway whatever cover was on there but the of course that original uk poster was um you know sort of very blurry face in the rain i mean actually it's what they didn't show was what made that poster for good or bad yeah Whereas they felt for the VHS release, it needed to shout on the shelves and that poster wasn't going to do it. Um, but what they thought was if they could attract the sort of person who would probably like the Damned and the Cramps and, you know, this other bands, um, they they would have a sort of a bit of more of a hit because um, it kind of, it, particularly for Britain's cultural um, landscape at that time, they kind of, that, that was very much a sort of good horror um, area to be in because, um, you know, we had um, places like the Back Cave were, were immensely popular. Uh, well, I say that, I mean, probably not many people went, but it seemed at the time to anybody that went that it, it was, uh, you know, it kind of it kind of uh, informed the future for music at that time, which, you know, sort of, um, sort of became goth, I suppose, and um, kind of informed fashion for a while. But uh, that kind of really was part of the horror music culture at the time. And um, right. 
the beginnings of golf, I guess, and, and also rock and roll, rock psychobilly, rockabilly, yeah. and that that had its own kind of B movie sensibility. You know, harking back to nineteen fifties B movie posters. So it's kind of all in there, really. Mm. And, um, but yeah, Return of the Living Dead. I, I only saw it for the first time when I was given the job. I, I missed it at the cinema, and to be quite honest, I didn't. It, the poster, I think, had put me off anyway. Though I didn't really want to see something which looks a bit sort of um, dull. And, you know, this is obviously way before the internet could actually give you a bit more information and actually get you more excited about something. So, you know, I didn't have that information at the time. And um, But anyway, I did get to see it and really enjoyed it and uh, thought, why don't I go to see this at the cinema? But, uh, <laughs> uh, but anyway, with it in mind that I was going to um, uh, have a particular target audience, that's what informed that piece of work. Yeah. So what's meant to be very much just of, um, a funny gothic cartoon uh, and that's really what it looks like it does i think i probably might have um played at the cartoon side of it a bit too much and uh and also you know i've, I've said it before i think it's a, a very crude piece of work which uh, you know i think should have been better but um that's kind of what i did at the time and um you know you can you can sort of regret things that have happened you 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 just learn from them and um do better next time but the, i mean that that's the old thing of been your own worst critic though isn't it to mm. be fair i mean I'm, i don't know about you but i mean i hate everything i do so at the minute i do i'm well, working through yeah. something I'll, yeah. it's not bad this and then as soon as i get to the end it's like i hate it it's, yeah, it's, awful. it's, it's always that like midway moment you think, oh this is actually shaping up really yeah. nice I'm going to be happy with this. And then in the last, you know, the last brush, my look back, I think, well, <laughs> I can't imagine that with any of your stuff. I mean, this is, the, I bet you do. You know, I look at your stuff and I'll be honest with you. I mean, I said it earlier. I think it's absolutely exquisite what you do. I love your style. I love your color palettes. I love just everything about the, the way you create your work because it's unique. It looks unique. You know, other, even other kind of um, poster artists, you don't look like they do. You know, you, you you have a unique style and it's it's wonderful. But I could imagine you probably sit there and go, yeah, no, I'm not sure about that. What you see is not what I, I'm I'm um, attempting to create because I, I what I've seen in my head what I'm trying to do, it never ends up looking like that. It's never quite as um, as accomplished as what I see in my head. And that's so it, it's always going to be a disappointment. So, you know, but it, 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 it spurs you on to do better if you can uh so it's a challenge every job is a challenge for that reason um but uh um you said something just now you touched on something which was uh, interesting but i can't remember what it was now. well that's the first <laughs> uh i think i think what it was was you know you 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 very generously said it kind of looks unlike anybody else's work and um i mean like i can definitely uh, say from the moment I was um, probably halfway through the college course, and I, I was obviously uh, um, edging towards illustration rather than cornflakes packets. If yeah. you know. What the world could have been if you'd have done cornflakes packets? Right? I can only imagine. <laughs> Tony the Tiger wouldn't have been the same, would it? <laughs> um, I, I knew that. Uh, I mean, there, there were there were favourite illustrators and artists at the time, and that um, everybody absolutely adored and. Um, there was a lot of airbrush work, um, which kind of, you know, kind of, uh, I, I guess is a product of um, the whole prog rock kind of music thing. And mm. uh, uh, this is kind of a slick kind of futuristic look 
um, which people were aiming for. I mean, science fiction was such a big thing then. Uh, I mean, it's big now, but it was far bigger, I would say, then than it is now, culturally. And um, I just hated all of that. And uh, I didn't want to do anything looking smooth and, and nice. I thought to do something that was horrible <laughs> and <laughs> horrific. And, but also funny at the same time, because uh, science fiction was never that funny. And um, so I think that's probably what spurred me on to do what I did. And uh, also, because although I could respect uh, all the you know talented artists that were doing stuff at the time, I didn't want to do what they were doing because yeah. other students at the college were actually trying to emulate them. And I thought, well, if I'm going to make a living out of this, I have to do something which is different. Fortunately, at that time, um, happily along um, came punk rock, which actually um, suddenly gave me my um, my escape route and uh, actually validated. I keep using the word validate. I'll, I'll try to use a different word next time. But uh, uh, it, it kind of it, it was the excuse I was looking for, if you yeah, like. Yeah. Actually, I thought, well, um, what I can do is paint what the music sounds like, and um, that's what I attempted to do. You know, the technique has has. Um, evolved since then but uh all those early pieces are, are pretty much my response to that music at the time and actually trying not to be anything like the stuff i've seen elsewhere so there was a, a, a very conscious effort to do something which i felt was different you know because it, it, it's a double-edged sword because uh, that's probably why i didn't get work to start with because it, it wasn't the stuff that anybody else was doing or anybody wanted or, or people could see um, would actually sell anything at all for them. But, um, you know, I, I guess once uh, Evil Dead posts had been painted um, a, a, and the film was a success, that uh, that, that kind of changed slightly. Mm. Well, changed for me anyway, though. Yeah. And then, obviously, the one that, that um, I chose that, that was my favourite video cover was um, the Nightmare on Elm Street um, that you did. The, you know, the, the kind of... It's primarily the blue cover for those of you that may remember it with um, Freddy's kind of in the background, in the shadows, and he's looming over a sleeping Nancy on Elm Street. And that's just, even now, I mean, I've got a signed um, print of that, which I bought from you when I, when I first met you. At, um, I think it was Weekend of the Dead in Manchester a couple of years ago, actually. Yeah. I love that that picture. Oh, that's an image. That's And it's just, I can remember, um, I was so excited for Elm Street anyway, you know, I was a big, big Fangoria fan and I was really wait, looking forward to this. I like Wes Craven stuff. And I went, we knew it'd come out on video and I remember going to WH Smith's in Clanded, no, no, horror. You've been to Real recently. You don't write in if you're from Real, please. The money's joking. I lived there for a long time. But yeah, and it, got, and it was there on the shelf. And that image, oh man, even now, I, I just find it wonderful. It just takes me back to a certain time in my life. This is what I'm saying about punctuating my life with your artwork. This is this is one of those moments that takes me right back to, to saving up all my money because the videos were about 15 quid back then, you know, which was a lot of money, you know. Um, and I bought it and I remember trying to photocopy the cover so I could have a, a picture of it on the wall and daft things like that, you know. But So how did Elm Street come about then? Well, again, it was just through Palace Pictures. Uh, I'd um, established a relationship with them through The Evil Dead and um, um, produced a, a whole bunch of video covers for them and... Uh, I think I'd already perhaps um, trying to think what else I'd done just immediately before that. Things I wasn't actually earmarked to do uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Right. Uh, they obviously thought all I could do was the Evil Dead, and um, 
so they were looking at other options um, for their poster. However, luckily for me, two very good friends of mine I've been to college with have set up their own design company and uh, I nudged them in Palace's direction. Uh, and lo and behold, they were starting uh, to get a lot of work from Palace. And anyway, they, they kind of did insist that uh, I would be a good potential for the poster and arguing that actually I could do other work other than, you know, this one thing. Yeah. So I think they needed to see a couple of examples of work. And I did have some book covers I'd worked on at the time. You know, again, um, although they had become an established company at that time, uh, they did take the risk, uh, which, um, you know, hopefully um, appears to have paid off for them. Uh, and it's interesting talking about the video cover because, of course, there are two illustrations for that um, film. One was the proper illustration, let's say, the, the, the one as intended for the quad poster. Mm. And the uh, VHS illustration was a, a secondary piece simply which had to be painted to fit the format of a VHS cover. So it was never intended to, to, to be in that arrangement at all, though. And, um, you know, I regard it as a sort of inferior piece of work uh, to the original. Of course, nowadays, I, I, I would just, you know, play around in Photoshop. I'd use that original illustration and reconfigure it. And I've done yeah. that before on a number of jobs before. You know, it can work and it's it's fine. I can feel happy with, with it because I know that um, the key elements are still the key elements. And, yeah. Uh, even if I have to recreate bits around them to match them together, that's fine because it's still the, the, the original paintings or the original painted elements. Uh, and I, I didn't have that facility at the time. Yeah. So, um, and actually the idea of trying to uh, do a photo um, composite in the old traditional way, um, that, that would have just been too expensive. It's cheaper just for me to do a, a new painting. So that's what quicker as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. A lot quicker. Yeah. 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 It's amazing. And another one of my favourites as well, which was uh, Freddy's Revenge, because I loved that with the school bus coming towards that. That's the, just the, there's something about the way you painted that. Cause... Well, ironically, of course, um, that was intent, that was painted with VHS in mind. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and uh, <laughs> it's just quite annoying that, uh, you know, even though that was the case, and I thought, well, you've got your film poster and you've got the VHS cover, they still insisted they needed a quad format, so I had to rustle up the second inferior version. <laughs> Which um, I was really annoyed about, but uh, anyway, it's it's out there and I can't do anything about it now. Yeah, because you did quite a few of the Elm Street ones, didn't you? I mean, um, I think I tell you one thing I remember was didn't you want to do a, a like a Bond? Was it you that did the Bond um, logo spoof for one of the yes, Elm Street? Yeah, with the, the gun barrel and yeah, um, the, with the blood coming down and yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was um, uh, uh, I kind of, I mean, I. I want to take credit for it but it, it was a, a, a um very much a sort of um a sort of group efforts if you like uh the person i was actually sharing a flat with at the time who had set up this other design company um hence the nightmare on elm street stuff we were both big film fans and we both loved all the classic james bond films and yeah. we knew that a new james bond film was coming out and we thought it would be really funny just because we had this established character of Freddy now, and in the same way that you know, Bond is an established movie trope, that just to be really funny, uh, you know, Ram's Bond is back, the man of your dreams is back. And it just it seemed hysterical. We just thought it'd be really funny just to present this as an idea to Palace Pictures. So we uh, rolled up for a meeting about, you know, a possible teaser campaign. And we just said so we just used the VHS player in, in the corner of the room. So we just 
basically put this on. We'd already, um, you know, uh, uh, lined it up just to have that one moment where yeah. a gun barrel, bond comes on and the blood comes down. And we just went, ta-da! And they said, fantastic, do it! <laughs> so we did. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then, of course, uh, what was it Warner, was it Universal, whoever it was, um, immediately said, remove those posters or we're going to take you to court. <laughs> and uh, I know that Nick Powell, who was running Palace Pictures at the time, uh, we bumped into him in the office about a week later and he said, fantastic. He said, that's publicity. You cannot buy yeah. <laughs> We were told to take it down because that, that, that ended up in the press. Um, Palace Pictures threatened with legal action by... <laughs> by <laughs> Brilliant. Showing the image, I would imagine, as well. Yeah, they did, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and the funny thing I remember about it, I did I did bootleg T-shirt with that on, you know. I bought it on the Prestatin Market. I used to have a part-time job in a market store, and um, I had a, this guy used to do these T-shirts, and he, he I got that that actual logo. I wish I still had it, you know. Um, I don't know what happened to Lot Mill. Well, I wish I still had the um painting I did. I mean, oh. it was just a simple black and white piece of artwork. In fact, two bits of artwork. One was the so mm-hmm. the other one was the um you know very simple gun barrel thing and and the blood um as another separate piece of black and white artwork but uh i, I don't know what happened to those i, I really don't know i, I wish no. i could know things that nothing had a value at the time you know these yeah. all things just did and um you go on to the next job you know when i was walk, um walking around you know with my folio of work trying to you know find other jobs um i had evil dead um just in a sort of a, a a2 um plastic sleeve in there the original artwork had the original art for Nightmare on elm street the original art for freddie's revenge oh, it was wow. just, yeah, just hawking the paintings around because you know it's cheaper to do that than do color photocopies uh, and um you know it's crazy really because you know they had no value to anybody wow. i mean you know, people that looked at them just thought oh, it's nice to see the artwork um and yeah. then to the next page but um yeah it meant nothing to anybody nobody Amazing. was interested particularly Gosh, do you still have many of them? Do you or the originals, or have you oh, kind of over the years have you sold them on or whatever? Originally, Evil Dead painting, um, and I've got Freddy's Revenge, that, that original, right? Uh, Nightmare on Street and Evil Dead 2 were sold on to fund um, the, the first book project, um, right? Um, clearly, in retrospect, a stupid mistake, but <laughs> you, know, you do these things, you can't, you know. There's no point looking back and regretting it because um it's happened. I know that the original artwork for Nominal Street is now owned by somebody I do know. They bought it off of um Alex Pride, and uh, you know they paid a, a shocking amount of money for it. Um, but at least I know where it is, and I know yeah. who owns it. Will will treasure it, and I do also know that um if I wanted to exhibit it at some point in the future, um I have essentially. Yeah, you know, in principle, their permission, obviously, as long as they know it's a secure gallery. Yeah. So the idea is, you know, I, I want to be able to, at some point, um, have another exhibition where the Evil Dead original, Freddy's Revenge and Nightmare on the Street are together. Um, I don't know what happened to the artwork for Evil Dead 2. Again, it was bought by a collector, but um, at least I know those are all here in Britain and um, yeah. it's possible to bring them together again, uh, which, you know, it's just, uh, it's just something for people who who know those two posters but wouldn't have had the chance to see the original paintings because you know, the thing about the evil dead painting is it's actually quite small um right. it's about three size and uh Nightmare on Elm street's not that much bigger either wow. um, simply because you know i didn't have money at the time and um um 
and actually you, you learn to economize by just you know working on smaller bits of paper yeah i know yeah no, it's as simple as that. you know it's just a practical you know real life thing yeah do you think that's where your use of a limited palette comes from? Because well, I know I was reading um, through your book and you were giving a little bit about your process and you primarily use eight colours in your work. Mm. I mean, because that's one of the things that... Well, that, that would have been partly economy. Um, yeah. We were, when we were at art college, we were given a range of colours that we should buy, which I have since changed because I've worked out what works best for me. The reason I have a limited range of colours or pigments is simply because I know I can get all the colours I need from those. Mm-hmm. Don't need any others. Um, they're all pretty much in what's called a permanent range. I probably pretty much light fast, yeah. um, and as much as we can ever know fully. But I mean, for instance, I I can look at the original Evil Dead painting in my room, and it's it, all the same colours that were there when I originally painted wow. it. And you know, I know that it was with a friend of mine in America for for a good two decades at least, if not three. And um, they had it uh, on their wall and, you know, that was exposed to light continually. But um, the colours haven't changed at all. So I know those colours are, you know, pretty, pretty good. Yeah. Um, and uh, the other thing is, it's, you know, why, why would you need anything else other than those colours if they give you everything you need anyway? So, I mean, I think it's, it's you know, you learn how to mix your colours. Um, yeah. Hopefully quite an early stage because what you don't want to do is waste paint. What you don't want to do either is end up with muddy colours either, though, because that whole thing where you just add white to make something lighter, black to make it darker, <laughs> is not how it works. It really is. And um, anybody who, who thinks that's the way it works ends up with a chalky looking painting, which just looks horrible. I sometimes see digital work, which kind of looks like that. And you think, yes. well, you don't have this problem with pigments, so there's no reason for you to do it with digital paints either, though, you, you know. You don't just add white, don't just add black. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't use black in my colour work at all. Mm. Um, I keep a tube of it really just for doing logos and, um, you know, yeah. titles and, uh, you know, graphic silhouette stuff and, you know, things which are not really illustration in the same way that the colour work is. Uh, on occasions, I might use it just a little bit within the colours just to, if it's, you know, that literally will be, something as stupid as an eyebrow or something like that. just some something where actually just that extra little bit of darkness is needed yeah, yeah. Um, but generally if I really do feel a, a bit of darkness is needed I, I can just you know tweak that in photoshop you know I, I don't I tend not to use black on principle um but I've got you know some dark a very dark blue I use and a very dark red and mixing those together gives me the, that that you know, yeah. be the darkest range within the painting um and white, you know, it, it, pure white only happens in a, a couple of spots at the last minute. Yep. You know, that's initially going to be um, that old cliche, you know, the um, shine on the end of the nose and the two bits in the eyes. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's amazing. It's very effective. It, it, it works. works, though, doesn't it? It's, it's yeah. bizarre. But when, yeah, when it's done well. It, it, Sometimes it, I'm naughty and I put those in before I finish. <laughs> do you know, I must, I must confess, I'm terrible for that. Because especially if I'm working on something, I'm thinking, oh. This is shit. I, don't think, I know what I'll do. A little bit of finishing And then when I finish it, I go, yeah, it's still shit. Yeah. And, um, but no, you see, you're getting a masterclass here as well if you're listening to this. <laughs> don't use black, otherwise, Graham will be like telling you off. But you can tell because the richness of the darks that you've got, you know, you can tell they're not black. 
Mm-hmm. And um, I think this is something that you do learn quite early when you, you start studying paintings and stuff, is that, you know, black just kills the picture, doesn't it? You know, often it will just overpower everything and nothing it's else. If you've got of orange, you know, if you've got orange, you want a dark orange, the last thing you can do is add black because you get a brown. You know, red or darker red, you know, and yeah. you have to, then you put a tiny bit of blue in. But, uh, but you know, it, it's just amazing how those simple things just kill colour instantly. Yeah. So just um, just going on from you, you you've done the Nightmare on Elm Street piece and then kind of did that then launch you again into into more regular work or was it still um a case of you know pretty much hit and miss with with the gigs coming in yes and no because um at that time again before the internet uh you if you're an illustrator what you would generally do is sign up with an agent if you could and i had done that already of course most agents would try to sell you to advertising agencies because that's where the big money was and where they would make their money as well um you know although i i I'd sort of broken um some territory i guess with with film poster work um it didn't really translate into advertising at all which still was very rooted in the sort of 70s concept of very hyper real work and um, yeah. that's where the big money was i mean occasionally you know an agency would um use me for something i, I remember doing a, a job Way back, um, it seems like, you know, in the midst of time when um, New Year's Eve meant uh, free public transport and it would be sponsored, ironically, by a brewery. Um, uh, so I, I remember, it was, I think it was Holston, did, uh, basically they, they would pay for an ad campaign which would promote the free public transport, free buses, free tubes and everything. And uh, they, they would plaster the, you know, London with these big, you know, um, large form you know large advertising sites yeah. underground leaflets everything so it's quite a big a big deal if you got that job and so one year i did get this job and um it was heineken yeah reaches parts that beers can't, can't reach so basically the, the agency decided they'd go with a horror theme uh well, luckily for me <laughs> <laughs> so they decided they wanted to do like a b-movie poster so you had the pint of beer with the, the logo on there, but they wanted it to look like a, a B-movie poster. So they had basically had this kind of werewolf claw reaching towards um, right. the, the, the point of beer. <laughs> so that was their, the, the, um, the the cunning campaign for um, free transport that year for, for New Year's Eve. Nothing celebratory about it at all, other than the fact there's a pint of beer in it. <laughs> Do you know, I know, it could be false memory this, but I think I remember that. Actually, like well, interestingly, because uh, I think the agency, I think it was Yellowhammer, I think it's that's who the agency was, and they, they were kind of um, a fairly young agency, young art directors, and I think they had a reputation for doing stuff which was quite was quite fresh and um, you know, sort of uh, uh, um, moving away from the old school of advertising, if you like, and that was one such project. And actually, they, they really ran with it. They 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 loved the campaign. Um, Heineken apparently, um, uh, I think it was it Heineken. It was definitely Heineken, wasn't it? Heineken reaches the beers of parts. I, I remember. I remember. Um, I, th- I think Meister was follow the bear, wasn't it? Yeah, I remember I that one. Okay. Sure, some of the old characters anyway. I'll let you know if we get it wrong. Yeah, yeah, I'll edit it in. Somebody will complain. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that aside, uh, one of the things I did say was it would be fun just to you know keep on with the theme I, I did the hand-drawn lettering which you know was the, mm. you know, the rest of the campaign 
And I was saying, what you should do is just get the worst printer you can find to print out the posters and leaflets. So everything's like, you know, a bit shit. I like, you know, it'd be slightly off register and the colours would be a bit rubbish as well. So, uh, unfortunately, I think, you know, technology moved on sufficiently that there weren't really bad printers anymore. Right. <laughs> so what they had to do was get a really good printer to offset the colour slightly to make it look like it had been printed pretty badly. Uh, so they did that, uh, you know, all credit to them. Fantastic. Uh, they're getting paid a lot of money for it so um you know and of course you kind of then you know carried on doing a lot of these um did you do primarily video covers or uk release stuff or were you working in the states at all no 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 work abroad at all uh and the reason is as simple as internet i think didn't exist to promote the work uh agents might have um most of the illustration agents were really just aiming at the British market. I think they might have expected some European work, but nobody really expected work from America because there, there are big agencies in America. And, you know, it's understood that the American look was very different to the British mm. look. Um, uh, there was, um, uh, I guess, more of a willingness to experiment uh, over here than in America, which, you know, was quite conservative mm. ways and kind of still is in some ways, I think, really, in terms of um, visual stuff. Um, I mean, that's that generalising. That's not really ultimately the case. I mean, there is experimental stuff and some very good, exciting stuff, but um, as there is anywhere else, really. But uh, it's just that we, we, we get a chance now to see stuff in a way that we didn't at that time. Yeah. And, um, you know, from, for myself, having things like you know necessary evils as they might be facebook instagram twitter i mean you know they they are fantastic for getting more exposure if you work yeah um yeah. and you know to, i have to say probably to an extent um working with arrow in the, the sort of early the early years when i worked with them that certainly garnered a lot more exposure than i would have had otherwise as well um because the work got saw, uh, got seen in the states as well as well yeah. as in the UK. But yes, the, the internet has been uh, my friend, shall we say, and that, that has really opened up the market for me. As yeah. a made rich uh, by any, <laughs> any stretch. Well, yeah. It has, yeah. Uh, has meant that I've got um, more work and a variety of work and working with people that wouldn't have a chance to work with otherwise. So. Yeah. And, and of course, the main thing is that you can work remotely. So whereas I moved to London when I left art college because I had to, because all the agencies, film distributors, and the music companies were all based in London, uh, yeah. around the Soho area, West End area. And, you know, so literally, if you wanted to work, you would be expected to go along for meetings, deliver, you know, your, your visuals, your roughs, have follow-up meetings or whatever, and deliver by hand as well. Yeah. Um, they'd expect to see the artwork and then make any comments, and perhaps if you had to make any changes, take it away again. And then bring it back in. Uh, if you if you're living in the West Country, which I, I had been originally, then um, you know I didn't have the money for all those train fares, and luckily I was able to flat share with some friends uh, very very cheaply, uh, and <laughs> in very impoverished circumstances. But um, you know that's you live with what you can, and you know it's what you have to do at the time. Um, when I tell people <laughs> I lived for about a year off of. Uh, uh, frozen broad beans um, uh, heated up in a broth of OXO cube. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I just had no money, literally. No. I had 
pay money. However, beer was very cheap. Yeah. So in the evenings we were about drinking cheap beer. No, I've been there. We've we've been there. There's something something being on the bones of your ass sometimes, isn't there? Because I think it makes you appreciate things a bit more when you actually get them. We yeah, appreciate think, every job you got, that's for sure. I think you just appreciate not having to like you know live on oxo cubes, don't you, and stuff like that. <laughs> but also, you know, meant that, um, you know, you, you took on all sorts of work, which you know very little was horror related in those early years, mm. which actually um was good because um you were forced to, to, to uh, investigate, research and paint and draw things that you would you know you really didn't want to, but you had to. Yeah. Um so actually it was kind of very educational in that respect. And also it means that when I approach a job now, I don't just approach it from the point of view of okay, here's a horror film, you do a horror film poster or you know horror film Blu-ray cover or whatever. You approach it from a wider um, perspective which means that um, you know you take in other elements as well you, you have other considerations I mean uh, you know it, it means that uh, perhaps um, I mean for instance you know right now I'm working on um, this project which is a, a sort of a, a alternative poster for Hammer's first Dracula film it's a, a licensed poster right with Hammer and um, the it's it's all created out of screen grabs um, so literally, I've got a Blu-ray. I'm taking photographs off the off the screen, uh, trying to freeze those moments, um, yeah. which are not the moments that you always see in, in other artwork. Yeah, uh, it's it's hard because you know if you know the film well, then you know that Dracula is in it for very um, little screen time. Um, he's hardly there at all. So, oh my God, there he's again! Just quick, quick, get the camera out. Uh, <laughs> he's always gone again. Uh, <laughs> But so it's kind of a bit like that, though. So these frozen moments are, are very hard to capture because, yeah. you know, trying to get the right expression because it's something about the way Christopher Lee uses his face. Quite often it's like Dracula's laughing and he's not. But um, when he f- frees that moment, he's got this kind of grin, which just doesn't look, <laughs> it just doesn't look horrific, <laughs> just look comical. So actually trying to get that moment when he's not looking like he's laughing, is very difficult. <laughs> and um, so the pictures are quite blurry. Uh, and that's partly the quality of the film. I mean, the yeah. film was probably made. Um, so no matter how, how, how much restoration work you do on it, ultimately, when you freeze a frame, it's going to be grainy and blurry. Uh, so in the background, there are this particular um, portrait I've got. And, and what I quite like about it is there are some uh, swords on display on the wall, which create some interesting shadows. And it creates a kind of burst. And obviously, it's been shot to, to capitalise on that. I mean, part of the yeah. film... Uh, sort of stuff you, you're not aware of when you're watching it, but actually it's there once you freeze the frame, you can understand yeah. actually all this has been considered very, very carefully. And uh, the swords, you know, actually quite important because they also indicate, um, you know, his his warlord background. It's all kind of mm. historical context, which is, um, you know, very important um, in, in the original story. Uh, but of course, they're all completely out of focus. So, you know, I will be sourcing some various bits of weaponry, um, which are, it means I can, you know, actually give them more definition, if you like. Yeah, yeah. Detract from the fact that the face is going to be so blurry because it's, it is just a blurred reference. Yeah, yeah. I've got a book, uh, which is, um, I don't know where it is now. It's, 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 um, it's the Hammer Dracula scrapbook by Wayne Kinsey, which if you're a Dracula fan, wow. fan it's an essential item. Uh, I think it's probably sold out now, but um, it, it's packed with images. Of course, 
you know, again, they've got the same issue that desire to publicity shots from the time. Yeah. Or, you know, the blurry screenshots that you, you, you have to do to, to grab stuff. Um, so there are a few moments from some of the later films which are shot in, in with much better quality where Chris Lee's a bit older, but there are a few moments in some of those later films where he does the same sort of look with his eyes, which is, and what I love about it, it's um, he can do a trapped feral animal so well, and it's mm. that's it's really good in his character. This whole suave Dracula thing is, is fine, mm. but it's very dull. But when he's this kind of trapped animal, it's quite, quite amazing how, how, how he can actually just play that role. Yeah. And that's the look I was lo- looking for, this trapped animal. And, um, and, you know, it looks inhuman and that's that's really what he's trying to do with a role, which he's barely able to, um, as he says himself, because of the quality of the scripts. It, there's not much manoeuvrability within in the scripts to yeah. actually get those little moments. But when he does it, he does it really well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, those guys were amazing. I mean, that that whole, you know, people like Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing and stuff. I mean, the the when you watch them, they're top class performers, you know, mm-hmm. really, like you were saying before, very theatrical in the performances. Um, but they're completely committed to the characters. Yeah. That really shows through. Yeah. Even um, other peripheral characters around them are just jobbing actors, just doing, you know, what they have to do. Um, you know, you, you can really sense that they've completely immersed themselves. You know, they've gone back to the original source material, researched everything very thoroughly and, and try to bring that, into the film even mm. if it's apparent in a script so in their heads you know it's almost like method acting yeah about you know being a plonker <laughs> <laughs> again like we were saying before you know dare i say sometimes there's a bit of laziness creeps in i think <laughs> acting and most things really or the trying not to act thing which is very annoying as well oh that thing about yeah don't act it's like well yeah, and actually you know for god's sake just articulate your words enunciate correctly I, I, a number of times I have to pull on subtitles on a new film no, now. Because they all mumble. And, and Hitchie's going to be like, what did they say? And I'm like, I don't know. And then by the time I've answered it, we've missed another plot line. And it's like, oh, forget um, it. It's like, I, I, I was only watching um, Ozark. And, um, you know, I thought it was quite interesting. I've I got a yeah. little bored now because I just realised that everybody's just horrible in it. And um, yes, <laughs> yeah, it's it's just, it just keeps on going, just being horrible and horrible. And, uh, you know, another thing pops up in somebody else's horrible Turns, you know, dies and another horrible person replaces them. It just gets very dull after a while. Uh, it's, it's almost predictable in its unpredictability, if you like. Uh, but um, the main thing was, I just started watching. I thought, I don't know what the hell anybody is saying. <laughs> what the hell's going on here? So I started on subtitles. And I thought, well, actually, even now I'm seeing words and actually nobody's actually saying anything. They're also even saying it so quietly that actually you wouldn't have heard it anyway. So that's just ridiculous, honestly. Just talk properly, for God's yeah. sake. And actually, you, 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 know, you notice, though, with, when you get a good actor, even if they're trying to be natural uh, in what they're doing, they're still being audible and understood. Yeah. And um, I, I think that the film I had a bit of difficulty with recently was uh, Mandy. I did yeah. an alternative poster for that for a group in America. And um, I had to turn to the subtitles on that one as well. I mean, Nicholas Cage, generally, I know he mumbles and does his stuff, but actually, I can usually hear every word he's saying yeah and he's very good at that because he's a good actor and um you know a, a wild actor no doubt but uh, um he, he does want to be heard because he wants people to under- appreciate his acting <laughs> <if you're> like. <laughs> yeah. 
uh, and that's you know hopefully it's a bit of ego which uh, actually works in his favor whereas um yeah some of the other characters I just, you know what the hell they were saying I have really no idea uh, and this whole sequence in, in you know it, where he's in bed at the beginning with um you know the, the Mandy character his wife girlfriend or whatever and um no idea what she's saying at all absolutely no, no idea so sometimes I have to go on and say ah okay now it makes sense now I understand yeah. You know what the relationship is, and um, also you know the context of everything else that's about to follow, which would have been lost otherwise. Though the last film I remember like that was The Revenant. And I... I remember H saying to me, "What's going on here?" After about twenty have... minutes, I'm like, "I'm got a fucking clue. I haven't understood a word anybody said so far." It's just, it's just the bear thing. That... Yeah, you know. And it, it's... Does the bear have to say anyway? Though? No, the bear doesn't. Well, I understood what the bear said. <laughs> visually brilliant you know again and you can't, the acting in it was tremendous but it was so authentic that you just couldn't understand it you know i couldn't and i, I said to h i've got a theory with all these people who reckon they know what's going on are bullshitting because they're all <laughs> they're thinking i don't know what's going on here you know and it's like, but nobody will nobody will put their hand up and go i already know what's going on I don't know. Can we have subtitles, please? <laughs> and then they'll put subtitles on things that you don't need, where yeah. people are talking in, in kind of like, I don't know, like a, an English accent, and they'll subtitle it, and you're like, why are you doing that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Again, we've digressed, Graves. We can... A new audience that can only understand mumbling. I know, yeah. It's the, the new language. Bit. It's a new language yeah. cinema, mumble. Mind you, I get that with my accent sometimes, particularly when we've been to America and I'll ask for something and they'll just look at me and it's like, they now I've got a clue what I'm asking for. They don't, they, they kind of genuinely go, what? And you're like, oh, God. I mean, I, I, at first time I went to America, I remember um, uh, somebody just saying, oh, you're from England, aren't you? <laughs> and uh, I said, yes. They said, oh, are you, um, do you know the Beatles? <laughs> Said no. <laughs> oh, she said yeah. <laughs> but I think you know England is is obviously Liverpool. Yeah. And somebody else said, um, "Oh, you're from um, England. That's near Paris, isn't it?" I said, "Yeah, it is yeah. in a way." <laughs> Compared to them, I suppose it is technically. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So you're doing. So just going on fast forward to now, then. So a lot of you work now. I believe you you're working for. Um, you've done work for Arrow. You're working for is it 88 films? Are you still doing yeah, stuff yeah. for them? Um, Yes, I've done. I'm, actually, I've got some work for 88 lined up at the moment. I've done work with Second Sight. Yeah. Uh, Eureka, I've done a couple of jobs for. Um, I'm working with another company. I've just started working with them, actually, Fabulous Films, who yeah. I think have been established for a while. But um, we, the guy I'm working with, we met at Oakley Courts, actually, and there's a, a film fair there. And, um, uh, and, and sorry, and he introduced himself and um, asked if I'd be interested in working with him on some projects. And, uh, so I've done um, three for him so far, and I've got three lined up now to be working on for him. And are these primarily reissues of of older titles. They are, which is, is, yeah. is, is you know it's fun um, to work on reissue stuff because, um, as I've always said before, you're not having to conceal anything, and um, there's you know a big body of material that's gone before, and so the you know you you have a, a challenge which is to do something different. Uh, if you can, uh, with you know what's going to be limited yeah. material, uh, you know, quite often with older films, you do find that um, um, there's not a huge amount of depth to them. If you like, it's all about mm. the on screen, and there are key sequences which um, 
obviously are going to be the sequences you're going to have to work with um, because that's where the interest lies Mm. Um, and of course they've been done to death by the people but you know you you do what you can with the materials and uh, try and present something in a different kind of way Um, so yeah it's it's it's, uh, yeah I I enjoy doing that kind of stuff and um, I've got some interesting titles coming up which are not um, strictly speaking horror as well them um, they might have elements of horror I guess within uh, but um, but you know it's, it's nice to branch out every now and again yeah uh, as long as I can come back to it of course <laughs> well yeah and well, I'm sure but then and you're doing a lot of commission work as well aren't you where um, has, has a lot of the, the recent work you've done been commissioned for individuals or for limited print yeah, runs, group, group commissions or, or right uh, yeah, there, there are. Well, there's one individual, should we just say, who, who um, I know here in London, who who is very keen to um, uh, reimagine all the films that he, he loved in the, from the 80s. Um, yeah. In poster form, and um, yeah, currently I'm the person he feels is is best place to do that for him, which has been great because um, you know, he's paying you know proper professional rates and um. And I'm able to sell prints to other people. Um, they're very happy about that as well. Um, and uh, you know, they're all quite well-known films, which means that they're, they're, there's automatically. But well, again, there are two sides to that. On the one hand, it means I get to tackle something which I would never get to tackle otherwise because um, I, I'm not worthy, if you like. Uh, on the other hand, um, it's stuff that I have to be careful with because I know that. Uh, you know, when, when you get a, get a film like Jules, for instance, or, yeah. um, you know, Halloween, they're, they're sort of classics of their genre. Mm-hmm. They have a very dedicated fan base, which is uh, also a bit, um, you know, uh, it's in ownership, if you like, of that fan base. And you, you, you don't step outside of that ownership yeah. without you know, incurring their ire and wrath. Yeah. So you have to be careful with um, what you're doing. I mean, I don't care really with these private commissions because um they're it's not for um the public it's not really mm. for that fan base it's for an individual and if they're happy then you know that's what i'm that's what i'm employed to do however because i know there is um potential market in terms of print sales that i know that uh, if i can make it appeal to to the fan base as well then um you know that's part of my business if you yeah. like sort of treading a number of lines there where you, you're pleasing the clients but you're also trying to appeal to to people who love the film as well as also challenging yourself and producing a piece of work you can be happy and proud of yeah so fortunately so far i've not had any issues uh, it's, it's, it's good if you're doing a private commission which where you can show the initial stages first like the sketch stage yeah i can't generally do that with the private group commissions because um, that is you know, very much in, in their sort of ownership and um, in, until such a point when they've you know got their um, limited run or the group agrees that I can actually show you know, right. little teasers and stuff, I can't really show the stuff. But with the, the individual here in um, London, uh, they're very happy for me to show yeah. the um, progress stuff. And um, a few clients will do that, allow me that as well. But generally, people like to keep stuff confidential. But yeah, doing um, showing the sketch, it kind of gives you a, a, a sort of a, a taste of how people yeah. feel about what, the way you're, the direction you're taking it in. Mm. And you know, I do try to explain to people that um, I'm, you know, trying to break out of what is the 
accepted kind of imagery for that project, doing something different where yeah. I can. And, you know, testing the waters, if you like. It's, it's, it's been okay. I've not had adverse reactions to stuff, though. I, I, I think with the, with the jewels one, one of the things I wanted to do was not rely on the model, Bruce model, because yeah. within a film, you, you, you know, you get... There, there are a few different sharks they use, and there's also real footage of you know, real great whites, yeah. different head, a different body. I mean, all, all this stuff going on. And of course, then you have the poster, the original poster, which is not yeah. anything like the shark in a the film. Then you have the book covers, which you know, from, from which the you know that sort of material came, which again are very different as well. Uh, so in my head, there is no reason to have an accurate version of the special effects that everybody. Yeah. See, which essentially the shark's head at the end on the boat, I think, is what people define as the quintessential Bruce uh, head. Uh, so I, I, I just I kind of threw that out pretty straight away, which obviously <laughs> was kind of a mistake. And fortunately, the, the showing the sketches I, it did make me realise actually that um, in order to sell it to the hardcore Jaws fans, there had to be enough of that Bruce head in there. Yeah. Yeah, but my reference was I didn't want I I wanted you know an all out monster shark, and teeth you know, had to be particularly horrific looking, and threatening. And Bruce, unfortunately, his, his, to me his teeth are been cut out of bits of white paper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't want that. Uh, but I, I managed to cobble it. Well, I think I did. I took my reference stuff from you know Google searches. Yeah, use about three different shark heads. Uh, match them together to to create the shark head I wanted, and then yep. I think I used the um, Bruce's eye from the film, uh, and, and maybe a bit of the snout, just to kind of give enough of the elements there from the film that actually it, it kind of seemed to work, and I think people felt that they got their Bruce, and at yeah. the same time I I got the, the big horror teeth. I'm just looking at it now. It's a, it's a beautiful okay. piece that Jaws. You've been knocking it out of the park with. with with these um, recent pieces you've done. I mean, the, I'm just thinking back to recent ones that really s- struck me. And I mean, this is going back a while, but you did the American Werewolf in London piece, which I actually bought the sort of special edition just because it had that cover, I'll be honest with you. There's two reasons I bought it. One, because I loved that cover. And the other one was because it had the, the Beware the Moon documentary on as well. But yeah, there's that one in The Thing as well that you've recently done. I mean, oh man. I was very worried about working on The Thing because um, I, I know that uh, there are specific images that everybody expects to see. And um, uh, I, I decided for myself um, from the outset with that job, I was not going to have that bloody dog in there. Uh, <laughs> damn dog in there. And I, I thought, I'm not having it. It's not going to be in my, my version. And um, and I thought, but I am going to get the flying saucer in there because nobody shows flying saucer ever. Yeah. So I've made the flying saucer a prominent piece of the artwork, and there's no dog. So you know, job done as far as I was concerned. So you know, I I, I just wanted to break out of those um, um, constraints that have always been put there. Yeah. And, uh, and also just you know, rather than make it just dark and you know either this white snowscape or outer space just you know just actually make it kind of nice daylight and then mm. have fire in there and the snowscape which is actually not white and enough of the you know, flying saucer bit at the top to give it sort, yeah. of a, sort of 50s kind of science fiction vibe as well which that opening scene 
absolutely definitely has because it's a very traditional flying saucer. Uh, so I kind of I feel that I fulfilled that without treading on toes and nobody has had issues with it at all. And also, you know, when you explain what you're trying to do with the image, that you're turning, um, you know, uh, Kurt Russell into Jesus um, uh, with the halo flying saucer, they kind of you know, they understand there's a, some sort of little play of humour in there as well, yeah. though, uh, which yeah. was very important, I felt. Uh, American Wolf in London is a whole different story because that is a compromised image. Right. Um, uh, I had to compromise with my clients, which because um, before it was an arrow cover, that was a finished piece, a private commission. And uh, uh, the guy, you know, told me what he wanted uh, in there. And um, I sort of watched the film a few times and decided to, you know, as you do, you, you have to make it your own in some ways, take those elements, but actually find the moments in a film which are not the expected um, parts, if you like, the expressions or elements, um, yeah. the, the, the way the character is um, traditionally seen, actually just change it slightly. Uh, but so I, my, my original version had um, the sort of uh, rotting version of um, Jack. And uh, I also had the um, kind of sort of creature, stormtrooper characters that storm in, in the dream oh, yeah. as well. Yeah. That, that for me was always one of the most powerful, horrific scenes in the film. And um, yeah. it's, it's brilliantly edited and it's really shocking when it happens. And it's it's over so fast, and it's almost like, did I see that? Mm -hmm. I thought it was such a great thing, and those creatures look fantastic. Because I thought the werewolf itself, you know, it's it's what it is. It's, it's very friendly looking. I, I never found it particularly frightening looking. It's a big, big, fluffy, happy dog. Very quite cujo, but with some teeth. And it's got those big, friendly yellow eyes as well, though, uh, which look like, like you know, the, those beads used to stick in toys. You know, I knew that the we all had to be in there and I, the idea was it was going to be leaping out of the um, porn cinema yeah. and so he, you know there was the porn cinema poster there and you know some triple x and all this stuff going on and i think i had a bit of the title you know see you next wednesday and uh, anyway the client didn't want any reference to the porn cinema in there so that, that was compromised and he hated um that sequence with the stormtroopers absolutely hated it so i don't want to see that in the poster so uh, with a huge empty space left, <laughs> I just thought, I think, I think of doing, which I don't, you don't normally see. I, actually, I have seen, somebody has done it elsewhere. I, I hadn't seen it at the time. I only saw it subsequently. It's the transformation scene, because although mm. everybody, you know, rates that scene, I've always kind of felt it looks a bit, um, you know, rubbery and a bit hokey. And um, I just didn't want to have the body in there. So I just thought, mm. just concentrate on the tortured expression and actually try to express the pain of the transformation sequence, which is, well, I hope I did. It was very much an afterthought and cobbled together at the last minute. Um, so probably isn't quite as successful as I wanted it to be, but um, it's there and that's what it is. I, I can't change that. I think it's a lovely piece. And, and uh, the and also, the other... I, I, he didn't want the rotting jack either, so uh, oh. normal jack in there. No in fact, fun, that was going to be the biggest element in a big kind of horrible yeah. be faced, but... Um, anyway yeah but that little bit of uh flop of skin and the other one that you've recently done which i absolutely adore is the dawn of the dawn i think it's just beautiful that. I mean, piece i don't think i had to any compromises oh there was a compromise that's true um i think that i had um <clears throat> what is now the zombies outside the shopping mall that the yeah. whole trip 
that was originally just going to be all the bikers, um, a whole gang of bikers um, heading towards us. And uh, so that was a big element because I thought it was a bit, an important part of the film. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to give it political subtext at the time, but because it actually seemed very poignant right now, that those were almost like the, you know, what's your name, the deplorables. It's almost like the Trump supporters, you know, kind mm. of destroying America from within. Mm. Uh, that was the bikers, you know, that, that's kind of what I wanted to get in there without making it too overt. But anyway, the the, the client said I, I didn't, he didn't like the bikers at all. And I, I really had to insist they had to be in there. So it's, you know, Tom Savini, for fuck's sake, you know. Yeah. And, you know, it's actually, it is actually an integral part of the overall film. And he, he, yeah. he compromised. But actually, I'm quite glad in a way, because I think that's, that whole, uh, uh, um, you know, feaster with the, the um, shopping yeah. mouth zombies was, uh, I mean, it was bloody hard to do. Uh, mm. I had to do so many screen grabs to get that right. And um, I think I even ended up throwing in a few random people I just Googled, you know, just random characters. I don't want some people stumbling around. I think um, I might. I've Googled drunk man, you know. Yeah. <laughs> drunk man somewhere. We could, you know, that's, that's the tip for you next time, mate. <laughs> King well, Street, then, there you go. <laughs> a tank centre on a Saturday night, yes, exactly. Brilliant. It's beautiful. Uh, but yeah, and also just uh, um, playing around with the colours as well. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, going back to the original poster, making a nod to that as yeah. well. Yeah. Uh, so there was a lot of things going on in there, um, and, and you know, it is very much my interpretation of the film. And also, I think, you know, giving um, due to the characters, the, the sort of hierarchy of characters in there was quite important. And, um, you know, somebody did say, why have you got, um, you know, Flyboy twice? Well, I said, well, you know, there are two different characters. You've got the, the, the guy, as he is in a film, the hero character, and yep. then you've got the zombie, but um, the zombie is such an important you know, part of that film for many people, you know, without without that character, people have felt cheated. I didn't yeah. want to cheat anybody, so um, that's why he's in twice. Exactly. And there's the other guy, of course, though. You've got the, uh, the, the, the hero character and you've got the zombified version. And yeah. I thought that was quite important because they're, they're, they're the placement of them as well, you know, it's it's meant to be like heaven and hell as well. And, and purgatory is this bit where the sort of undead are meandering around, you know. I mean, that's what, you know, big moles are like. It is purgatory. <laughs> like, they can be. Yeah, um, from what I can remember. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, to be fair, trying to go to Costco and do a big shop's bad yeah. enough now. Bloody hell. Hell than purgatory, I find. God, yeah. It's not, not nice, is it? Okay. So, uh, at the moment, you've got your latest book, which is Hung, Drawn and Executed, which I have here. Uh, a signed copy, by the way, um, which I managed to pick up. Is it signed by me? It is signed by <laughs> It better be. Is that your signature? Uh... That's my illegible squiggle, yes. That's, that's right. Yes. Okay, I won't be taking that back then. Um, <laughs> wonderful. So, I mean, do you, do you want to just talk a little bit about how this came about quickly then? And, and you know, because I know you talk about why you've included some of the stuff that was in the previous book and things like that. Yeah. Well, the previous book was Drawing Blood, which was a limited edition gallery edition. Um, it was uh, only intended to be 500 copies, um, but the uh, the way the uh, the guy wanted it to, to be presented and his vision of it as being a high-end book meant that it was an expensive item 150 quid uh but you know we tried to make it worth it as, as far as i could it, by you know putting the clamshell case around it yeah the you know limited edition jiggly print which is unique to the book 
and uh, you know, it's hardcover, and I, I, I did everything I could to get some interesting people contributing towards it. So there's, you know, Sam, Sam Raimi's represented in there, Brian James from The Damned, uh, who basically kickstarted punk rock, as far as I'm concerned. Um, a few other interesting characters, um, I think Jeffrey, did Jeff, Jeff Coombs write something? I don't know, maybe he didn't for this one. He did for, obviously, Hung Draw Next Kid, but uh, yeah, various people. Um, I can't remember them because <laughs> it seems such a long time ago now. And also, you know, this this newer book, it partly was uh, trying to redress this idea that the book was too bloody expensive for horror fans. If it had been science fiction fans, they got money. They would have bought it. But so it's horror fans. They haven't got money. Um, I haven't got money. They haven't got money. And it just seemed like a bit of a cheat to make something so expensive. So, um, yeah, some people did buy it, of course, but uh, uh, fortunately. Uh, but anyway, I wanted to do a book which people could afford. Mm. And as much that, you know, it could for the, you know, the, the quality and the format of the book. So we, you know, compromised as much as we could on the price point to make it something affordable, but still of some value. So I wanted to, I wanted to include pieces from the original book, yeah. uh, uh, just to give it, you know, just so anybody who couldn't afford the original book would have those pieces. And for me, they were still important legacy pieces to give context to the newer pieces, if you like. Since Drawing Blood had um, been published, since that period of time, there had been a new body of work which I wanted to include to show that there had been some you know very definite development since yeah. that point yeah and uh you know what, what I felt was um superior work to the previous body of work which of course now I think <laughs> the more recent work is probably better but um you know well after the moment I've hated it of course then I've come to like it again um, so yeah, it was really about showing off the new work and having some of the older work for context, but also uh, because I made some contact um, in, in that time since with a few characters, people that I thought would um, give it something a little bit extra for myself mm. to, to link it to all the things that inspired me and to also give it the uh, context I've talked about before, which was the stuff I watched as a kid and mm. literature part of it though so I was lucky enough to get Dacre Stoker, Bram Stoker's great yeah. brand nephew, which for me gave it that kind of a the beginning of horror if you like though. yeah Just, yeah uh, you know, begat if you like all the universal monsters and hammer stuff so that was really important uh had Victoria Price also founder being Vincent Price who was you know was um crucial to to I think a particular period of horror film mm. Um, and, you know, although we know that Vincent Price had a career before the horror stuff, House of Wax, you know, gave him uh, a, a new kind of audience, if you like, in the Roger mm. films, you know, a, a quintessential horror uh, value, I'd say. Yeah. Uh, so to get his daughter to write a little piece um, for me was fantastic. To get Sarah Karloff, you know, daughter of Boris Karloff, to write something as well, because uh, Boris is image as Frankenstein is represented and actually also the old dark house of course though so he's represented in a book um and I just thought you know I knew that she I already knew through somebody else that she had really liked the poster for the old dark house yeah I requested a copy of it as well though. so um she very kindly offered some words as well wow. then Jeff Coombs who I'd met a couple of times at different conventions were very very happy to write um a piece for me because um obviously I've painted him a number of times as well and um, Larry Fessenden, um, I, I've worked with on a couple of projects. And to me, he's quite key in um, the way he, he used his 
um, personal wealth, if, if, I, if I can say this, though, and he, he's the first person to admit it. But, you know, he, he had a comfortable background, which enables him basically to use that money elsewhere to actually inspire filmmakers, um, actors. And, you know, I, I, I hugely respect him for that. He's given uh, people the chance that they would not have had otherwise, though. And that's because he basically used his personal money to actually ensure that that actually went on to, you know, to, to bring about things which, um, yeah, you know, he, he feels very culturally important and, uh, yeah. And so, so, you know, respecting him hugely for that, um, he was able to offer a little piece for me as well. And, uh, I don't know if I've forgotten anybody else there, but, um, anyway, th- those were key people to get in there. I, I felt it kind of represents periods of my career. If you like the stuff that inspired me, the stuff that, um, gave me a career to an extent and you know a little hint of the future as well though it's a it's a wonderful book though i mean it really is i mean it's jam-packed as well with with examples of your work and and really i mean i've got to say the quality of reproduction is is lovely you know i've I've got lots of art books and i'm never failed to be disappointed by the quality of, of the pictures in there do you know what i mean you kind of go like i've seen the painting it's nothing like that and this isn't oh, that i mean this yeah, is a that's in part of what i was telling you earlier on though about uh, i i know now what will work in print yes yeah. that um you know my work is not designed to be seen as a painting on the wall it's designed to be it's the printed result is what is um intended to be seen so uh because i know what will work well mm. I, the limitations of print are and um, so, you know, all, all of this work is created for print. So yeah. it would have been uh, very unfortunate had that not um, come through at all. Uh, one of the important things in a book for me was to um, was to show the painting process as well, the whole work process, because um, as I think I said at the beginning, I didn't really want to, I don't want to create any mystery about the work I do. For me, it's important to make it perfectly clear how I work and that other people can see exactly what's going on there so they can know you know when they look at a painting or a piece of my work they understand yeah. that it doesn't just happen or it's there for a reason and um you know when they when they look at the image they, they can see how it's being built and actually and you know hopefully inspire people to do likewise you know and um show them that it's you know I, okay i did have some art training i was very lucky to get that a lot of illustrators don't go through that process and um, mm. it gave me a lot of discipline which um i think is the downfall for people who didn't go through that process that they they miss that discipline i mean you, you you touched on you went to art college yourself now i don't think i think you'd be hard put to find um an art college which actually gives you that basic grounding now in the same way that um mm. There were no computers uh, when I went to art college. Mm. Des- desktop publishing didn't really happen until widely until the mid to late 80s. Before that, we were working without computers. You know, it th- th- meant that you did have that grounding of um, the way you use type, the basics of typography, yeah. the traditions which still inform the way type is used today. I mean, when you when if you use some desktop publishing software right now, you'll be still using the terminology, although you don't understand why it applies, there are certain phrases and words like pikers and leading and yeah. earning all this stuff, which um, is there in the software. But um, of course, it all refers back to, um, you know, the, the, the actual way stuff was put together originally. For instance, the when you use Quick Mask in Photoshop, it def- the default is red. 
they used to have masking film which you used on stuff which was always red ruby right. i think it was yeah. called and um so that is there for a reason as well and it refers back to all that grounding color theory i've never been a big i don't understand how that really works at all but i, I just think what i think works really well you, you understand that you know certain colors are, are the exact opposite of other colors and for me it's always yeah, interesting yeah. to make those work together um because you were kind of generally taught that you kind of keep things you know within a sort of um a spectrum, uh, a friendly spectrum. I always think it's more interesting to make it unfriendly, if you like. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, life drawing was, you know, very, very important in in my development and um, yeah. understanding how the, the body's put together because you actually don't really know it until you actually taught it. Yeah. Perspective, foreshortening, all this stuff. It, it, once you have that presented to you, kind of it, it changes your perspective completely. The way you view things and the way you represent things as well and, and the great thing about um foreshortening perspective and stuff like that you, you learn very quickly that um if you haven't got much time on a job we just put something big at the front it just covers everything else up so <laughs> you don't have to do more stuff in the background it's great <laughs> i learned very quickly that actually if you put a hand in there it, it fills up so much space yeah <laughs> big pointy hands you know fist or whatever Brilliant. Yeah, save so much time. <laughs> yeah, and of course you're one of the um, well, I would imagine probably one of the last few major artists to still be working uh, in gouache. I used to have a Welsh art teacher who's called gouache, <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's like, what the hell's he talking it's, about? It's funny words. People think gouache. Oh, gouache, yeah. But again, beautiful medium to work with. I mean, I can I keep trying to master it or at least you can just get half competent and i just get really frustrated with it but i do want to you know it's one of the things i've set myself as a little goal for probably next year is to start to learn to use it properly and more effectively it's what lockdowns are for <laughs> yeah no trouble i've been too busy bloody working so you know i say there's there's yourself and, and i think um alex ross from the states he does a lot of the you know as you probably know the marvel and dc stuff he's yeah. he uses the same medium and it's it does look unlike any other medium you know it doesn't even look like acrylic or it does right. have a unique look to it doesn't it it's beautiful well it kind of gives you um the best of both worlds in, in in if you think of watercolor and acrylic uh watercolor is of course designed to be transparent um so it's the white of the paper is ultimately what what gives you your light source if you like uh whereas acrylic you use it's an opaque mm. paint um like gouache is is basically watercolor with a white base uh which is why it can um if you're not careful look quite chalky mm. uh, so it's, it's it's one of the skills of using gouache is to try and you know, avoid that chalky look but the thing with acrylics are that they dry and then it's just a lump of plastic uh whereas gouache because it's a water-based paint a water-based pigment you, you can just you know add water and you can just you know reconstitute it yeah so, you don't waste as much. I, I find acrylics a bit too wasteful. Gouache is, is economical to use. Certainly, when I was a student, it was um, you know a cheap option uh, rather than oils or acrylic. But also, it dries very fast. Um, it's very versatile, and the surface itself um, allows you to paint on you know a paper and then roll it up, basically to store it um, without the surface cracking or, or whatever. Uh, so. You know, largely when I when I finish the job, I, I roll it up and store it like that. Wow, 
Well, if you ever want to roll them up and store them in my direction, then, uh, <laughs> feel free. <laughs> so the disadvantage of that is that um, when it comes to, if, I, I have some stuff I've got stored flat now. Yeah. Um, but when stuff's been stored, rolled for an, an amount of time, I mean, literally I've got thick rolls of stuff where it's like, you yeah. know, loads of bits all rolled together. It's it's like a coiled spring. It's very hard to you know, mm. uh, you know make it flatten it again. And, and that process stuff, as as you say, is included in the book. And I found that absolutely fascinating. And as someone who, you know, who paints themselves, I love seeing other people's process. And I, I just I could spend hours. It's like watching people ink. You know, and they do videos where they're inking. Yeah. I could, it's like mesmerizing. <laughs> I just sit there, kind of staring at it. It just it's it's a beautiful thing to see somebody paint. Um, in many ways it's, it's, it's creating an illusion um, you know you're creating the idea of um, detail and depth and space and colour and it's it's all really it's all about um, it is it is the art of illusion in a way yeah. because doing is you know without putting detail in you're suggesting detail I mean you know, the work is not finely detailed by any stretch um, there are people that do that and um, my, I, I, just, I don't have the patience and I think my eyes just aren't, aren't good enough to um, do that without you know, some big magnifying device which I don't want to use at all. Plus, I don't think there's any point because um, for me, you know, it, it, images are instance. You know, you, you see it and you, you take it all in. Mm. You shouldn't have to linger over it. You know, the impact should be there instantly. And if it's if anything that isn't there in an instant um, impression is, is wasted, I think. So, uh, right. So there's no great detail in anything, but there is the illusion of detail. So you look at it and you think you're seeing more than is actually there. So basically, you look at any, any of my work, you, you go right in there, and it just, that, you know it's it's actually quite crude, but it's it's how you add those crude elements together to to, to create this this kind of, um, yeah. kind of image. I think if anybody listening to this who isn't familiar with your work, then they're going to go and look for your work and they're going to see your work. I think they're going to be calling bullshit on that, I'm afraid, because it's absolutely astounding. Don't listen to him, people. It's right, it's rubbish. It's talking nonsense. <laughs> Honestly, if that's not detail, bloody hell, you know. And I was talking to another artist who um, made an interesting point about, we got to talk about, you know, like super realism and stuff. And I was saying, I, I admire the ability, but I don't actually see the point of it, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I do admire it. Don't get me wrong, and I can't do it. But I don't quite understand that, going to that detail to the point where it you can't tell it from a photograph or whatever. And he said that with his work, he's always been less about realism, more about believability. That was the thing. You know, if you look at it, no matter how naive it may be, is it believable? That's what he's after. And that's what I get from, from your work is that because of the colours that you use that often make up the compositions, it's believable. It's just so beautifully rendered and believable, you know, with the shadows and stuff. So, yeah, it is, it's, it's beautiful stuff. So, yeah, Hung, Drawn and Executed, it's available, I would imagine, in all good bookstores. And um, you, you don't sell it on your website, do you, Graham, at all? Or... No, I don't have a shop on the website. Um, it's just literally I don't have the time to maintain a shop. And um, yeah. it's just the castle. You know, I sell prints to people that email. Largely, I try to sell them at conventions. But if people email me, then, you know, I, I keep a stock and I, I send them off. You know, I'm not print business. So uh, it's just something I would do yeah side but um you know I, I, my, my time is best spent on the illustration work and, and producing the images rather than you know servicing some sort yeah. of business and also you know the fact at the end of the day uh everything is you know licenses are in 
operation for everything. I mean, all of this is commercial work. Yeah. Uh, except for the private commissions, which aren't, but they do then stray into that kind of licensed area. So mm. um, my prints are essentially folio samples you know that's that's how i sell them you, 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 if you buy a print off of me mm. it's covering the cost of the printing but it's also you know you, I, you know as far as i'm concerned you're buying the signature on there if you weigh the, if you like that's the, that's the way out of any sort of licensing issues but i'm not making you know, money yeah. out, not stealing money from any company uh, and, and by selling prints at all though um so they are promotional items yep. as such so yes yeah, yeah. so the book is fine because um with pretty much every image in there, as far as I could, I've had permission. Yeah, uh, I have I've gone to the client, and said, "Look, I'm, you know, can I reproduce this with your permission?" Interestingly, the I've, I've got one piece in there, "Hammer at the Vault," uh, piece which was created for um, a screening festival, if you like, Hammer Films. Um, that was created in conjunction with Hammer Films originally, right? And um, it wasn't a paid job, but when I asked Hammer if I could reproduce it in the first book drawing blood they said no which seemed very odd considering i hadn't even paid for it but anyway i thought well, i'm going to try them again for this book and um i whether had a change of hands change of heart i don't know but anyway there didn't seem to be an issue at all and they were very happy for me to reproduce it which you know, i'm very pleased about anyway though but also it, it ties in with a couple of other pieces in there one of which is the uh, one of the last pieces which was put into the book before went to press uh, was the damned poster for Night of Thousand Vampires, their big Palladium show, right. which was presented in conjunction with Hammer. Uh, so it, there's a kind of tie in there, which I really yeah. want to have. Um, uh, so so anyway, so I was pleased that that's in there. Anyway, since Hung Drawn uh, executed, uh, which I think went to press, was it last July? Oh, July rather, 2019. Yeah. There's been a whole bunch of new pieces, though, so I'm now working towards the next book, hopefully. I was very pleased with the way this one went, and um, the publisher was very supportive and yeah. um, and um, done a good job in selling it as well. Uh, so uh, I think he's, he's talking about doing a second printing. I mean, I, I'd be happy with that. I don't know how, how could that can be shifted if basically everybody who wanted this one has bought it or will buy it. Um, it's coming to the end of its run in terms of you know what copies are left. But um, you know, for me, I, I'd rather work towards a new book and um, include some legacy pieces yeah, in yeah. new, just to tie you know to tide it um, mm. tide it over, I guess, though, to give some sort of um, uh, continuity, if you like. Yeah, it's. I mean, it is a beautiful book. I mean, I I, I do have um, Drawing Blood as well, um, which again is a stunning piece of work, but. I've read this more because it was cheaper. <laughs> and B, it's not it's not quite as heavy to lift, but it is. It's just beautifully put together. It's really good. So um, really hope that we get to see more of this kind of stuff. And uh, again, as I say, it's available hopefully still at all good bookshops. And I know I got my copy that was signed from Forbidden Planet and things like that. So try and shop at your local shops if you can online rather than, you know, using the big retails if possible. But it's beautiful. Definitely, definitely. And especially coming up to the end of the year. And if you're looking for that, looking for something special for the, the gore hound in your life, climb and tell you what, you'll go wrong with this one. 
you all go wrong with this one. So just just on other projects then, Graham, have you got anything else that you can tell us about that, that's coming up soon that you're, you're working on? Obviously, I know a lot of stuff is tends to be kept quite secret. Well, um, I'm quite excited about this Hammer poster, obviously. Mm. Draft is one of those touchstone films for people of my age and um you know i think it's i think hammer still have their place in horror history i think you know maybe uh, you know some people aren't as interested as i as i am and um enthusiasts but uh i think it's an important part of the british cultural um uh, place in horror and you know there are enough hammer fans out there i think yeah. basically i think it's planned as a limited edition poster right I, the intention is to have it as a full color screen print with an addition probably no more than 200 probably 100, between 150 copies 200 wow. but then um we built into that that i will then be able to do some a3 prints um which i'll, I'll just sell you know a convention yeah. stuff or, or, or you know via email uh I, I won't reproduce it at the size of the initial run the limited yeah. edition which will be it's like 24 inches by 34 inches so it'd be proper poster size mm. But the idea is that it will have some longevity after that, uh, and that Hammer will reserve the rights to be able to use it if, if they so wish on any right. uh, subsequent merchandising. It all depends on how it looks, of course. Though. I mean, I'll do my best on it, but um, you know, we, we never know how things are going to turn out. And uh, but you know, if this if this looks good, then I'm hoping it might lead on to you know another. Um, presumably, the obvious choice would be the Curse of Frankenstein. Yeah. Uh, to, to you know, give it that Hammer legacy. But yeah, I'd love to one day tackle the Gorgon. Uh, that's a, you know one of my favourite Hammer films. Yeah. Um, maybe Plague of the Zombies as well. Another classic there. And, and my absolute favourite, which always shocks everybody, is the, the Lost Continent, which everybody thinks is ridiculous and rubbish, but actually it's quite rich in its imagery mm. and uh, potential. Wow. It's oh, by the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Well, nobody expects that, do they? No, they don't. No. <laughs> brilliant oh that's great stuff and i mean i guess one last question for you then would be um do you have a a, a grail poster that you i mean you may have mentioned it but is there a job that you would love somebody to come along and say you know i'd like to commission you to do this um i don't have that now i might have done at some point in the past but uh <clears throat> because i've tackled a lot of um you know sort of fan classics if you like with the mm. private commissions um i mean you know as you know, I love Hammer films, so I guess this current job would be one of those um, fulfilling um, items. But, uh, you know, I, I think I've learned just to assume that, um, you know, you, you can't you, you can't anticipate what's going to come along. Yeah. Um, and, you know, any, any sort of particular favourites of mine, I think, are going to just come along anyway at some point in the future. Yeah. So, I've learned to, you know, there's no point in, you know, wishing, I wish I could have done that, you know, but, because uh, actually, eventually you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine you do. I mean, I keep wishing somebody would ask you to do um, either a Texas Chainsaw or a John Waters piece, um, just so I could get the prints of them. <laughs> but if I win the lottery, I'll be, t- I'll be giving you a shout. <laughs> 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 but uh, no, cause I just I know you've done a couple of um, uh, divine images in the past and stuff, and and I just I could I could only imagine how wonderful something like that would be a pink flamingos piece or something. Let's let's hope let's hope that you know these people keep commissioning you to do these classics and and that you're still able to sell these wonderful prints that are signed. 
by Graham himself. And we'll give links to your where they can order them from and have a look at them. Because if you want to treat yourself to a piece of quality artwork to go on your wall, honestly, you you you'll be filling your boots when you see these. They're wonderful. <laughs> so uh, that's been great, Graham. I've really, really I'm sorry we've taken so long, so much of your time, but it's just been fascinating. It's been absolutely, you know, I've loved every minute of it. It's truly wonderful listening to you talk about. about because so, you know, as, as uh, somebody who's been through the, um, you know, art college process and the, you know, and, and painted yourself, then you, you you have a more an insight into the work I do than, you know, mostly if I do an interview, it's going to cover, you know, how did you get this poster and yeah, know, next. And it's all, all the usual things, but actually it's just nice to be able to talk about um, the nuts and bolts stuff in a way that i don't normally get to talk about yeah that's what we try and do on this this podcast we try and look at slightly different um, perspectives of things you know to give people a a bit of a vision of of how it's done like you say the nuts and bolts because that's something that people they don't often get some people find process boring but i love it and i know lots of other people love it as well because you you learn something you know particularly from someone like yourself that you know, you and I know you disagree, but you truly are a, a, a master of the art, you know, and it's wonderful to just hear you talk about what you do and how you do it. And I, I can't thank you enough for coming on. I think it's been, been absolutely brilliant. No, it's so, been, if you want to do it again at any point, you know, we'll always. We will do. No, I'll, I'll hold you to that. So, particularly if, um, if you end up with another book or whatever, but no, we'd definitely love to have you on again. And uh, do you want to just tell people maybe where they can find? Um, I mean, it's, it's an absolute disgrace if you don't know already. I'll just say that to you so you should feel ashamed. But um, if they don't know for some bizarre reason where they can see your work or, um, you know, have a look at buying some prints or whatever, do you want to give your uh, your socials and your website stuff out? Yeah, you can find me on Facebook. Just type in my name. You'll you recognise a stupid face. But uh, uh, if you, you go to the website, which is um, justmyname.com, greatmumphreys.com. And um, I am on Twitter and Instagram. I don't know what... I, I think I'm sure you can just find me, but um, I, I don't know what the um, names are on there. <laughs> I'll put it I in the show notes, don't worry. I think um, it, uh, Twitter might be Graham Humphreys with an eight instead of an S at the end. Um, Instagram, no idea. No, I think one of them is back to front. I can't remember. I'll stick it in the show notes. Don't yeah. worry. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I hope you've enjoyed this show as much as I've enjoyed recording it because it has been really, really good. If you have enjoyed it and you want to check out previous episodes, then you can obviously, uh, you know, find us on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all the other gubbins where they, they do podcasts. And if you want to see more about my work and, and the kind of stuff I do, then obviously you can find me at art92.com and that's the website and Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. It's all art92 because, um, you know, as I say every week, you know, when you get to my age, you're lucky if you remember to put your pants on. So if you've got more than one social media handle, you've had it. You know, I'd, I'd never be able to log into anything. So, yeah, and again, you know, I just want to say one more time, thanks to Graham. Been a wonderful show. I hope you've enjoyed it on this, what will be Halloween when this drops. So I hope you have a good spooky night. I will uh, look forward to seeing you again next week when we continue our Art of Series. And one last thing, I'll just leave you with a quote from a classic line from the 1968 British horror movie, The Devil Rides Out. I won't be back, but something will. Have a spooky Halloween and thanks for listening. Thanks, Graham. Thank you. Bye.